0: You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the twilight zone. Quite right, it seems that each succeeding year is a little less exciting than the previous, that we seem to be wallowing in a very ruddish concept here. Most noteworthy being the lack of ingenuity, the lack of new concepts, the lack of new ideas and new approaches. The fact that we should pr- be producing, I think, a body of exciting modern literature in this marvelous new electronic media, and aren't. Uh, it's reached a point now, I guess, where when something noteworthy is on, it shines simply by virtue of comparison. It, it is so unique uh, by virtue of its aloneness. asked, properly asked question and in informal moments when you can buttonhole a network executive he will say to you that indeed no it is not the responsibility of the networks to enlighten to educate to lift the intellectual values and interests of a populace not at all they are simply there to reflect what are the entertainment tastes of the masses they have forever said this not publicly but in any private conversation this is principally what they will say of late and i have never been a plea copper, i've never begged off an issue before but i'm beginning to believe that there is a strange groundswell amongst the American populace, the citizenry, that would seek out an escape away from reality of late, that their tastes lie much toward the entertainment quality rather than the cerebral
1: quality.
0: Well how many times can you write The Fugitive and feel excited and feel (laughs) challenged and feel inspired? I challenge, you know, any writer retaining any kind of perspective, any kind of criteria, self-criteria for what is qualitative writing if each week he has to write about the same kind of guy. that was pure anthology but what we had going and which was our excuse to remain on the air for five years Bernie was simply that we did have a thread of continuity. We had a concept which was science fiction, fantasy, the occult. I have always maintained Jim that any audience with any kind of brain at all will respond to the story of prejudice in terrible form in which they may step aside as third persons and cluck and say, how awful we treat our minority groups, but at least they know that it's an evil and they will recognize it as such, and by osmosis or some incredible process will somewhere along the line be faced with a situation in which they too may have to exercise a prejudice and be conscious of it as an evil. Now on Twilight Zone, for example, done during just as timorous a time as any other time, Mm -hmm. we made a comment on prejudice, on conformity, on intolerance, on censorship, but it's easy to do it when you're talking about Buck Rogers isn't allowed to write his memoirs in the way he wants to write them. Yes. So he puts on his backpack, his rocket pack, and he zooms over to the publisher. And they applaud and laugh and think how exciting and interesting. Now, it may Different. well be that the inner message may never get through, but I think peripherally it does get through.
1: Yes, Rod, it did get through, uh, at least. To wow, some we best. don't even
0: need to do the show
2: now. He pretty much just <laughs> summed up everything.
1: Yeah, so obviously that was uh, Mr. Rod Serling talking about, um, you know, society, the show, television, and all of that. Um, a bunch of clips strung together, uh, you know, some of it was in the same interview. I I cut out um, a really annoying other person, kept interrupting him, uh, some poet from the South whose accent was particularly uh, ridiculous. Anyway, uh, I'm sure it's somebody famous I just don't give a shit about, but uh, welcome to episode uh 39 obviously we're going to cover the twilight zone the original twilight zone i'm jeff and uh, that's slip yes and by the way i learned something already on the show before it has really even kicked off that a buttonhole doesn't mean what i thought it means uh so it actually <laughs> means, <laughs> it actually means something quite innocent i'll let you uh, look it up anyway this is uh the cultural futures exchange cfx for short this is where we uh you know examine different Uh, Pieces of cultural ephemera, TV, obviously uh, today, but movies and uh, books and music and stage and all of it. And this is what we do here. And it's kind of conceit where we go long on something that means we think long term. This is going to stand the test of time and increase in value. uh, Short the opposite that we think it's going to go down in value or, or neutral in a fake stock market kind of way. And so that's what we do here. And that's what we're doing here today, talking about the Twilight Zone series. So. Slip, what say you about this?
2: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. You know, that intro, it's funny. I was uh listening to uh, you know, one of our and Jack Kennedy's favorite uh shows on YouTube, Sea of Tranquility. And um last night and they were talking about their favorite, like kind of sci-fi horror shows when they were kids. And and one guy kept talking about how pretty much every show's plot is the fugitive. Yeah. Like it's like, you know, like the Planet of the Apes show, they go around to different communities of humans and they kind of there's kind of like they, they go from town to town and help people or whatever. And it's like so many shows have that formula. And that was like kind of the prevailing popular show at the time of that interview he was talking about. But that was so coincidental because they were talking about, yeah, like you could pretty much just take any any show and make it the fugitive where it's this these guys, they have some goal right in the case of the fugitive it's to prove his innocence um but he's going from town to town and it's kind of just like meeting people like the a-team is like that right the a-team is just going from town to town and helping people or highway to heaven or these kind of shows right it's like it's like there's so much formula and it's so funny that that's what he called out at that time
1: yeah
2: um so yeah i think it's really interesting uh his views. And like I said, he kind of sums up a lot of what we're going to talk about in that interview.
1: Yeah, and by the way, of course, during the entire interview, he's chain smoking, which is we'll also talk about. Oh
2: yeah, oh yeah, I mean, unbelievable! It's, it's crazy. Even in the intros of the show, he like the first season, he doesn't appear at all, right? So yeah. you just hear the voiceover. But as soon as he appears, like nine times out of ten, he's smoking a cigarette. He can't. He's so addicted, he can't stop even to record the show. I know. He's got to have a
1: cigarette the whole time. I know, it's crazy. It's well, tragic
2: though. Yeah. it's tragic, as we'll get to in the history.
1: Absolutely. So anyway, so this is uh, we'll get into it here. This is the, of course, the original show, which aired in the late 50s and into the early 60s. There's been many reboots, which we'll talk about, and many, many derivations and ripoffs and remakes of and movies of it and such. So let's get into it. Um, And this this episode will sort of uh, style wise, structure wise, will sort of mimic what we've done with like our AM Gold episode where we're going to kind of count down our favorite uh, Twilight Zone uh, episodes. And then at the end, we'll kind of give our evaluation of where we think that this... Uh, yeah, the series, game show
2: episode was similar, right? Game show
1: episode is similar, yeah. too. Yes, that's right. So let's. Uh, we'll kick it off with our personal histories here. I'll, I'll go first. Um, so I. this is a huge part of my childhood. I watched Twilight Zone um, often, although not as... It was played all, almost always on KTLA Channel 5 in L.A., but what I remember most is that uh, several times a year, uh, KTLA would run Twilight Zone marathons, where right? they p- uh, play like 24 hours of Twilight Zone episodes. And this happened on Thanksgiving, sometimes on New Year's, and then almost always on Fourth of July, actually, um, which is upcoming here, uh, a time that we're recording this episode. Um, and so I would sit there and watch these, and, and I love them, and I've seen... Um, I probably have seen almost every episode at some point, but but of course I've seen some many, many times, my favorites, which you'll be hearing some of them uh, a little bit later in the show. Um, I always felt drawn to them as a kid. There, there was something very compelling about them, creepy, compelling and creepy at the same time. They gave me chills, but in the best possible way. And for whatever reason, they resonated with me, even as a small child. I mean, I remember watching these five, six years old um, and just thinking there was something really interesting about these, even though I'm certain I couldn't really process the larger, you know, kind of context, which we're obviously gonna break down today. Um, Rod, in, his, in the intro, was talking about uh, the cerebral nature of the show. And, and I think that that's exactly the right word. Um, the show has a very cerebral approach to things. And it was something that was a huge influence on me as a kid. Just really more than anything, how good writing could be and how powerful uh, good writing uh, could be, um, as opposed to like what we have mostly today, which is, you know, violence, porn and car chases and that fight scene bullshit and all that kind of stuff. I mean, on the comedy side of the ledger uh, MASH in its best form uh, before the Alan Alda took over, maybe everything super serious years that when Larry Gilbart was. Uh, one of the main forces. That was similar in the kind of cerebral comedy nature, and that was a huge influence as well, a series undoubtedly we'll get to. So, um, yeah, and on MASH, lots of uh, morality plays, uh, melodramatic ones, which, you know, Twilight Zone has its share, too, as we'll get into. Um, But that's pretty much it. I've seen this show. It's been part of my life since I was a little kid, and it remains to be seen when I think of it uh, long term. So I'll hand it over to you.
2: Yeah, same. I didn't remember it being KTLA, but that must have been the same for me because I grew up in the same area as you. And I mainly remember it being Thanksgiving. I don't remember the other times, but I'm sure that was the case. Right. And the reason I remember it being Thanksgiving is because I always wanted to watch it and everybody in my family wanted to watch fucking football. And it was so boring. And uh, that's still the way it is now. Anytime we have Thanksgiving together, there's always stupid football on. And and it's like me and my cousin were always like, yeah, you know, there used to be these A&E doc, you know, they'd show like the making of Empire Strikes Back. And it would just be like these guys with models. And I'm like, this is what fucking Thanksgiving should be, not this football shit. Um, But the Twilight Zone, too, you know. And I remember, especially during the marathons, um, because it was on, like, I think after school, because I remember watching it all the time. And it was just I was just talking with my wife about what was weird, about what was on after school. But Twilight Zone really kind of was one of those things that worked uh, because no matter what age you are, you can get something out of it, even though some of the concepts when I was really young might have been over my head. I think that just the horror and shock and the the quality of the acting, the music, the directing and especially the writing we'll talk about, um, you know, is it's just so great that I think it, it it just resonates at any age, at any time, at any period, as we'll talk about, even though there's some issues I have with some of it. Um, I think overall, I don't think there's any doubt. It's That's one of the reasons why we're just kind of picking our favorites, because we it kind of already we already know that it stands the test of time because of all the derivations and all the attempts and all the attempts that mostly fall short of the original for the most part. Right. I think um the other interesting thing about the marathons was they would show some of the hour-long ones from season four. Season four was a shortened season that featured hour-long episodes, and we'll talk about why that was in the history. Most of those don't work very well, but it was kind of cool to see them during the marathon. I was like, whoa, I've never seen this one, you know, because it was like they couldn't, that they would reserved a 30-minute slot during the day for syndication, and they didn't show those. But in the marathons, they would bring them out, and I remember that. I also remember Twilight Zone, the movie, which I was really into, even though half of it's terrible, half of it's fucking great. You know, Mm -hmm. and it's it's I remember being really into that. And that kind of was the thing that launched the first reboot, even though it wasn't that successful. And I also watched shit like Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which was actually a huge influence on the show. It was first. Um, And I also watched The Outer Limits, which was completely sci fi, which, again, those shows, I don't think measure up to the Twilight Zone but they do have their moments. Um, They do have their classic episodes as well. Now, as far as the reboots, I didn't really watch any of them. I might've seen a little bit of the 85 to 89 series. Um, The 2002 series, I didn't remember, but I am going to talk about one episode of that that I watched recently that's fucking terrible. And the Jordan Peele show, I had no interest in. I just heard it was bad. Um, I kind of do want to watch some of it. I kind of respect him for... The influence on him. I mean, he's so influenced by Rod Serling Um, in all of his shit. Even Get Out is is influenced. Get Out. I didn't I haven't seen Nope yet, but Get Out and Us. I mean, Us is directly influenced by an episode I'm actually going to talk about. And of course, Black Mirror, which I think is awesome. I think Black Mirror is the true, um, you know, when it's at its best is is up there with the Twilight Zone. Um, Obviously, not every Black Mirror episode is great, but the ones that are great are really in the spirit of Sterling, And I think they're very influenced by it. So yeah, it was fun to revisit this, watching these episodes again. I was just blown away by how good they still hold up and uh, how well they still hold up. And, uh, you know, I really enjoyed it. Even some of the bad ones I watched, I was kind of like, I still enjoyed them, you know?
1: All right. So let's uh, talk about the, the zeitgeist. You mentioned a few of the things, but why don't you continue on with that?
2: Yeah, yeah. So the zeitgeist, obviously, I was like, well, when did this whole thing, because when we think of the Twilight Zone, we think of plot twist endings, right? And that's like, um, that's kind of become synonymous with the Twilight Zone, like stuff like we'll talk about a little bit more in the history, but someone like M. Night Shyamalan, that's his whole modus operandi, right? He just, he's just basically makes Twilight Zone movies. So we say, that's Twilight Zone Like that's a Twilight Zone thing, even though the twist ending goes back to the beginning of time, like a lot of uh, like kind of Aesop's and Grimm's fairy tales have a twist ending. You know, even think of the legend of King Midas, right? He could turn everything to gold and how that didn't end up very well for him. And I, was found a, I found a Wikipedia article that talked about the various types of twist uh, endings like Deus Ex Machina, et cetera. There's obviously also the Greek tragedy of Oedipus Rex, where he ends up marrying his mother and killing his father. without. He doesn't even realize that he's married his mother. And then he kind of gouges his eyes out at the end. And yeah. it's like, that's such a dark ending. It's very Twilight Zone. Uh, there's this whole thing of para peripatia they talk about, which is a Greek term meaning sudden reversal of fortune. Uh, Jeff's going to talk about an episode that's probably the greatest example of this, which is Time Enough at Last, um, which we'll go into as one of the episodes. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, Serling, as we'll talk about in the history, is very influenced by the, the kind of pulp magazines that were around at the time, like Weird Tales and Amazing Stories yeah. and John Campbell's sci-fi. And, you know, he, he kind of we'll talk about this but he kind of used sci-fi and fantasy and horror as a way to deal with uh controversial issues in a way that wasn't as controversial because you're kind of masking these issues because he 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 tried
1: at the beginning right
2: right exactly so you're kind of you're you're making these enter entertainments but they have a moral message and you're trying to get your message through um and we'll talk about that a lot and of course radio radio is had uh you know um like shows like it's later than you think like these horror sci-fi shows with twist endings that he was very influenced by he listened to radio as a kid uh constantly and his first work was done in radio and i think the kind of radio kind of shows like suspense etc were very uh much precursors of the twilight zone so i think the radio and of course radio informed the beginnings of television right? It it was what influenced early television. And then he was part of, he was one of the innovators of television. And we talk about this golden age of television now that started with the Sopranos and all this, but the 50s and early 60s was really a golden age of television, even though he kind of talked about all the garbage that was on TV. There was great things on early TV. There was this show called Playhouse 90, which um, Serling was one of the main writers on, that featured future great film directors like Arthur Penn, John Frankenheimer, Sidney Lumet, Franklin Schaffner, um, writers like Serling, Arthur Haley, and of course our favorite, Aaron Spelling. But these were like- um, (laughs) Really? And great actors- (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no. Aaron Spelling was actually kind of an artsy guy before he kind of sold out and figured yeah. out a formula to make us dumber, as Jeff said. Um, Twilight Zone made us smarter, maybe. Yeah, you know, we, we'll say that because that's the that's a classic CFX thing, right? Yeah. TV that made us dumber and TV that made us smarter, and it's very rare that TV made us smarter. I, I think. think. But Rod but,
1: Serling know, and Aaron Spelling are antithetical in that regard, in my yeah, opinion.
2: Yeah, I think Rod Serling you know, tried to stay with, have integrity and stay with it. But Aaron Spelling very quickly saw dollar signs and, and appealing to the lowest common denominator. Obviously Alfred Hitchcock presents, which started in 1956. That was also very influential on the twilight zone. So, but you had these great shows like Playhouse 90, these really artistic shows with directors that would be great in the sixties and seventies that would make great films. And then Jeff's going to talk about this a little more probably, but obviously literature, we have stuff like George Orwell's work. Yeah. Um, there's probably other authors, like even sci-fi authors like Robert Heinlein would try to communicate um complex ideas through science fiction. And obviously Or Orwell is the most the most probably of, of those, and probably the greatest. Uh, yeah. the one who's really stood the test of time the most. So that's kind of the um the zeitgeist. Now, as far as Rod, really the history of Twilight Zone is the history of Rod Sterling. He, I mean, I was blown away. I think, you know, obviously he died very young, as we'll talk about. But I think it was a combination not only of his four-pack-a-day cigarette habit, that was the main contributor, but I think he might have just worked himself to death. Because, I mean, he, The Twilight Zone had 156 episodes. He wrote 92 of those. Yeah, I mean, that's insane. It's like a one-man show. I mean, obviously, he had some other writers that I actually will go into a few episodes of. Um, and he he adapted things and they they, you know, would pull in other th- uh, other short stories and stuff to adapt. But he wrote almost all of them.
1: And he produced and, it, um, and he, he runner, like it. And he was a showrunner like all. of And he
2: was, you know, he did all the intros. And, you know, I mean, he just did so much stuff. And I just have so much respect for him and also just as a human being, uh, which we'll go into. So, you know, he was born in Syracuse, New York on Christmas Day uh Nineteen twenty-four. His father was an amateur inventor, which I thought was interesting, but, you know, mostly worked as a grocer and a butcher to support the family, especially during the Great Depression. Um, He has an older brother who's also a writer, a novelist and aviation writer, Robert Serling. Uh, They grew up in... Bingham to New York for the most part. And uh, Serling was known for constantly talking. He would just act out, dial- you know, be in the car and just be acting out dialogue and they couldn't really shut him up. He was also known as a class clown. Was and he, he eventually... smoking
1: then as a child? Because it seems like it.
2: Could be, could be. Yeah. You'd imagine this guy just talking with smoke coming out of his mouth, like you know, in, like hot boxing the rest of the people yeah. in the car. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, But anyway, he ended up on the debate team and writing for the school newspaper. And he was obsessed with radio shows, particularly thrillers and horror. Um, You know, and he went to high school and did all these things. But but right when he was about to go to college, World War II broke out and he immediately enlisted the morning after high school graduation. And he was part of the 511th Parachute Infantry of the 11th Airborne. And I yeah. have in parentheses, EO-11. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway. Um,
1: yeah, except but, uh, that he stayed legit. He didn't go uh, rogue and try to knock off He the didn't suits. go
2: rogue and try to. And he actually did serve in the war, unlike anybody uh, yeah. who's in that movie. Um, actually, some of the probably, you know, who knows? Norman Fell might have been war hero. I don't
1: know. Yeah. But Frank wasn't. Um, with his cannon, he certainly took out the enemy. Uh,
2: that's <laughs> so well, he just fucked all the soldiers' girls while they were out to war. And yeah. that was actually a thing. People yeah. were people were pissed at him. And there's a whole story about Frank and the war, but we'll eventually get to Frank and his music and we can talk about that. Um, but anyway, um, he was sent to the Pacific Theater. He was bummed. He wanted to go fight Hitler himself. And there's a lot of Hitler references and uh as we'll talk about in the Twilight Zone, but uh and a lot of World War II references, uh because this was such a formative period of his life, he was sent to the Pacific Theater in New Guinea and the Philippines mainly, um, and he was transferred to the 511's demolition platoon, which was known as the Death Squad for their high casualty rate, which was 50%. Fuck. Fucking crazy. I mean, dude, this guy was a fucking badass. Um, He saw tons of horrors. He had this, there was this one story where He and a guy were sitting there talking and there was a food drop off from a helicopter. And it was just like an accidental friendly fire kind of accident where the food was dropped on this guy's head and it decapitated him right in front of Serling. Uh, There's this other story where they would kind of have these parties in Manila with performers when the war wasn't happening. There was a sudden attack and um, Serling ran right into the line of fire to rescue one of these performers. Um, He was completely brave complete badass he was awarded the bronze star the purple heart and the philippine liberation medal by the time he had he had been discharged that was in early 1946 um and he went to study actual physical education uh at antioch college which is interesting um he met his wife carolyn there they were married in uh, 1948 they would eventually have two kids jody and Anne, two daughters um, he while he was at school, he wrote for the campus radio shows and interned at various radio uh, stations during the summer. And he actually got this part time job testing parachutes <laughs> uh, and he would get five hundred dollars a jump. But what's crazy is one of the things he, he did was he also tested this ejection seat. What he got a thousand dollars for. And the first three guys to test it had died. Oh, during the test; They were killed. So this guy, I mean, God. I just I just read this and thought this is like the like a superhero this yeah. guy he's just unreal. Um he won a script writing contest around this time uh, got 500 bucks for writing for a radio show called Dr. Christian that was well known and interestingly enough another guy who won was Earl Hamner Jr who would later write a few Twilight Zone episodes. Um his first job out of college was a cop as a copywriter his full 1st first full-time job at WLW radio and he sent out a ton of scripts Uh, But many were rejected because they were too visual. So it was almost like he was born to write television or for a visual medium. Um, And then I like this. His first TV job was at WKRC in Cincinnati. Um, Yeah, I know. That's funny. huh? WKRC uh, for a show called The Storm. Uh, he then moved to Connecticut in 1953 and started writing for these anthology shows. I mentioned one, Playhouse 90, but he wrote for Kraft Television Theater and Hallmark Hall of Fame. Uh, and he Playhouse, was first...
1: yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I see you're going to talk about this. Go ahead. Yep.
2: I am, I am, yeah. So so the first kind of acclaim he got was in 55 for a show called Patterns, uh, a, a kind of TV movie called Patterns, uh, that was kind of a corporate drama. And he won his first of six Emmys. Mm uh for writing that and it was um kind of cited you know there's a whole wikipedia article just on this show because it was kind of a landmark tv show it was kind of a game changer for people realizing that tv could be as as good as the as film uh, for for writing and direction and etc in 1956 so he actually had boxed during the war he was a flyweight um but didn't he do and yeah i know it's crazy uh so he was he was a kind of an amateur boxer. And he in 1956, he wrote um, this show for Playhouse 90 called uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight with star Jack Palance, who was also an amateur fighter. And it had Jack Palance, Keenan Wynn and Kim Hunter. And um, this, he won his second Emmy for writing. But what's funny is he started to run into censorship. And that we'll talk more about this, um, because like for one for one thing. Thing in the script, he had this line that a character says, Got a match, and had to be censored because the sponsor of the show was a company that made lighters.
1: Yeah.
2: So that's the kind of, you know, and, and the Twilight Zone would have these different sponsors too. And there was always kind of controversy whenever they try to get too controversial. Um, so, anyway, uh, let's see. Sorry, I lost my place here. Um, so, you were going to say something about Playhouse 90?
1: I was just going to say, Requiem for a Heavyweight was very famous. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's and I'm
2: and sure. there's an episode I'm going to talk about that kind of relates to that as well. That's one of my favorites. I mean, Jack. Uh, when Lance we get to that,
1: is famous, you know, for the the City Slicker, terrible, really among movies. other things. Yeah, among other things. But he made a horror movie that we're going to have to cover at some point. He was in called Without Warning. Have you ever seen that?
2: No, you told me. I think you told me that that was one of the first movies you saw that kind of messed with you. Yeah, yeah.
1: We're gonna have to yeah, cover yeah. this movie without warning. Anyway, go. That uh, sounds
2: great. Sounds great. Anyway, so in '57, he moved to the West Coast because that TV started to move from the East Coast, New York, to Los Angeles. Um, in 1958, he directed this, or he wrote this um, TV movie called "A Town Has Turned to Dust." This is his first time working with William Shatner, and it was based on the lynching of Emmett Till. Mm. And uh, he had to censor and modify certain plot details, like he had to change the race of one of the characters. But it was pretty much just the story of a lynching. And it was completely uh, censored because of the reaction of Southern audience. So he had Southern audiences. So this was why he kind of started to shift to more fantasy and sci-fi, because he knew that if he was much more literal, his chances of being censored were much greater. So it was kind of a clever mood.
1: More lynching? Yeah.
2: They probably wanted more lynching or they just didn't want to be, uh, uh, castigated for murdering people, Ah, you know, innocent ah. people. Um, anyway, so this is kind of where the twilight zone starts. So in 1958, he'd written what was meant to be the pot, the pilot for the twilight zone called the time element. It ended up being used for, um, Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball's Westinghouse Desi play (laughs) playhouse instead, but it, it, basically is a time travel story where a character goes back to right before Pearl Harbor happens. And they realize he times, Hey, this is a trope that twilight zone would use tons of times, but the show actually premiered on CBS on uh, October, 1959. Um, It was characterized by obviously by surprise ending or a moral, many were sci-fi fantasy. um, And again, addressing controversial topics in a clever way to avoid censorship. The intro credits were different every season. I'm not, I don't remember what, se- you know, when we played the intro, I don't remember which one that How was. Season but was like Okay, season three, because there's one, there's like a signpost up ahead. There's some that, you know,
1: yep.
2: uh, that are different. Um, that was the one rate, that had
1: that creepy doll, you know, in the intro, season oh, three. Oh, okay. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The kind of, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the creepy, yeah those montage like, are great. The, hair, yeah, the
1: yeah.
2: credits are great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So also around this time when the show was on, it was really critically acclaimed, of course. And we mentioned this guy before, Newton Minow. He had written this book called Television or this article, this landmark article called Television in the Public Interest. We mentioned him in the infomercial episode. And this is what led to some of the regulation of infomercials. And um, he singled out Twilight Zone as one of the few worthy shows on TV, Uh, kind of echoing what Serling said in the intro to the show today. Uh, the show ran for five years, 156 episodes, as I mentioned, 92 written by Serling and 127 out of 156 were written by Serling, Charles Beaumont and a writer. I'm going to talk about uh, Richard Matheson. Um, and then see. So season one, just a real quick history of the show. Um it was uh, 59 to 1960. It was 36 episodes. Um, opening theme music was by the great Bernard Herman, And the music of this show is incredible. They, Bernard Herman and Jerry Goldsmith, just some legends. Um, and then it was a voiceover narration. So you don't see Serling at the beginning and ending of the show. Uh, season two, 60 to 61, was 29 episodes. The opening theme was changed to be by Marius uh, composer Marius Constant, and that's the guitar and bongos kind of hip hip sound. Um, but one of the issues was that uh, an executive named James Aubrey took over CBS. He did not like the show because it, the show was critically acclaimed, but it was not very popular. It didn't get high ratings, and it was expensive to make uh because of the quality and so he basically wanted fewer episodes and then toward the end when the budget started to run out they had to use videotape rather than film for six of the episodes one of the great episodes that's in videotape it actually videotape kind of looks creepy is this episode called 22 that i watched that's so really cool about this woman who you know is kind of having these nightmares of going to the morgue and says room for one more and the twist is that she ends up almost getting on a plane And the plane ends up crashing. Um, It's really good. Uh, Season three, 37 episodes. Um, So I I should mention that he had won an Emmy for the first season. I think he won like, I don't know if I have this later, but he won like three or four Emmys for the Twilight Zone over its its entire run. Not enough. Uh, Yeah, I know. At any rate, he was exhausted by this time uh probably from not only from writing so much, but you know again smoking constantly um he had won uh multiple Hugo awards as well for um you know the sci fi award uh for the show um by season four uh they had trouble finding a sponsor, so each year they'd have a sponsor like Colgate would just sponsor the whole show you know they'd have like one or two sponsors and they it's constantly had to get sponsored. Yeah, I know, I know. He did. I think their uh, Chesterfield might have been a sponsor yeah. one year. Yeah. But um, at any rate, they the show had been replaced, so it had been canceled effectively, It had been replaced by a show called Fair Exchange, which was an hour long drama. But that series failed; it got even worse ratings. So they brought it back in January as a mid season, January of '63, as a mid season replacement, and they they changed it to an hour long format. So there were 18 episodes that were an hour long. I would say most rankings of the show rank most of these toward the bottom. There are a few interesting ones, but it just didn't really work as an hour. Most of the shows are kind of drawn out and they're, they just don't, they're, you know, most of these are not the legendary episodes we're going to talk about. I'm going to talk about one just because I think it has elements that are good, but it's kind of really on the nose for the Twilight Zone, not as good as some of the it didn't have the subtlety of some of the, of the episodes. Yeah. Season five, 63, uh, 64. Um, uh, you know, this, I think this season actually has some, some of the best episodes, but it was really not as focused and Serling was really just burn out on it. He just felt like we, they were kind of recycling plots and uh, Jim Aubrey, you know, uh, hated the show and he was constantly sick of, of, of doing the show. And I think it was kind of a mutual decision to bow out. Um, And interestingly enough, one of these episodes, uh, one of the last ones of the season was called the encounter. It featured uh, George Takei Mm. uh, as a Japanese soldier. And it was about him and a, a Japanese soldier and an American soldier kind of confronting each other and in an attic. And it was taken, it was kind of never shown I was originally broadcast, but was never shown because it was so racist, which is kind of a weird thing for the Twilight Zone because the Twilight Zone was so progressive for the yeah. most part. But I think this was just one that's I mean, there's like Japanese music and shit in there. It doesn't really, you know, and he's like yelling bonsai and shit. It's kind of stereotypical. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure what they were trying to do with that episode. I've never watched it. I just kind of knew that fact. So, again, the show was popular with critics, but wasn't that popular. OK, so. Serling won. Oh, he had won an Emmy for Requiem for the heavyweight. I think he'd won for something else. And then he'd he's always fourth uh, Emmy. So he won Emmys four and five for season one and season two. He was nominated for season three. So after Twilight Zone, one of the most famous things that Serling did was he wrote the original draft for one of my favorite films, a film we'll get to, maybe we'll get to the whole series, Planet of the Apes, Um, This was a uh, science fiction film based on a novel by French author Pierre Boulle, and the Serling script was rejected because it was too expensive, because Pierre Boulle's novel pictures a very advanced ape civilization with helicopters and stuff. It was much more modern, whereas the eventual movie would be much more rustic and medieval, uh, which I think works better anyway. But one thing that Serling came up with is, of course, the great twist ending, which may be the greatest twist ending of any movie ever. Um, if you haven't seen it, uh, just go watch it. I don't want to spoil it for you, but it's it's I think this is, you know, one of the most ingenious ideas for a twist that's ever been done. Um, he also wrote the screenplay for the great Frank John Frankenheimer kind of nuclear kind of a Cuban Missile Crisis adaptation, The Seven Days in May. Um, he wrote um, a twist on The Christmas Carol called The Carol for Another Christmas, which is like a post-apocalyptic version of A Christmas Carol with Peter Sellers. Um, he tried to do a Western called The Loner uh, in 1965 and 66, but it failed. Interestingly enough, as a uh, kind of overlap with our game show episode, he was the first host of a, a game show we talked about called The Liars Club oh, in 1969. No oh, that's yeah, funny. He followed that up with uh, with another kind of Twilight Zone-esque show called Night Gallery. I remember that. Um, yeah. 1969 to 73, which is more horror focused. It's pretty cool, actually. It's definitely not as good as The Twilight Zone, but it's cool. And I think Spielberg might have directed one of the episodes of that. He, You know, Spielberg was starting to direct. He had directed a Columbo and was starting to direct TV. There's, so there was some cool quality to that show. Uh, but during the early 1970s, said, by, by he most- the way,
1: I saw an interview with a different interview with Sterling. He's talking about the Night Gallery, and he was saying that he has comparing it with Twilight Zone. That Night Gallery, he has very little creative control. He fought with the censors and the network all the time. You know, like he, he was just basically saying, "Yeah, it's okay. There's a couple good episodes that he's proud of, but for the most part, he was sort of downplaying it."
2: Yeah. That that makes sense. I think that pans out. I haven't seen many Night Gallery episodes, but it's you know, I'm sure I'm sure that's true. You know, he he even resorted in the early seventies, kind of just doing TV commercials. I haven't seen any of these, but he did commercials for Ford, Radio Shack, and Mazda. Um, in 1972, he he was acted in an episode of Ironside with Jodie Foster. Interestingly nice. enough, yeah. and then he went back to radio and did a radio show. Uh, called The Zero Hour, which is available on Hoopla for download. I haven't checked it out, but I'm going to. I'm going to listen to a few of these because I wonder if they're good. Now, one of the funniest things he did during this time in 1974, there was this um, 48-hour long rock concert that was aired by 200 radio stations in 1974. And he was kind of the host, but it was all made up. And it was basically a fantasy concert where they took kind of spliced fake footage and and it even had a fantasy Beatles reunion and he would then he would announce at the beginning of each uh kind of segment hello this is Rod Serling and welcome back to fantasy park the crowds here today are unreal <laughs> this is fantasy park the greatest live concert never held it's so funny anyway unfortunately right after that in 1975 he died of a heart attack uh, he had, he had had a heart attack. They tried to do surgery and he had another heart attack during the surgery and died. He was only 50 years old. Again, he was a four pack a day smoker. Um, and uh, oh, he said he was a first layer of Joe Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Jesus Christ, Joe, just look at Rod. So like, I mean, I think partially he might've worked himself, I mean, worked himself to death too, but I mean, four packs a day, you're just asked, I mean, come on, you know, it's like, at any rate. So as far as the aftermath and the legacy, it's huge. You know, even during uh, the the time of The Twilight Zone, there was The Outer Limits, which was just a direct knockoff. Not quite as good, although it has its moments. There was The Twilight Zone film in 1983. Um, this was an anthology film where we had John Landis, who did... Um, uh, An episode uh, that was based on back there called Time Out. It's mainly notable. It's not very good, but it's mainly notable because of his uh, terrible uh, kind of production uh, and disregard for human life. Because there was this terrible helicopter accident that killed Vic Morrow and two... child actors, Micah, Din Lee, and Renee, she and Chen, like six and seven years old, respectively, or seven and six years old, respectively. And he had violated ch- child labor laws to get them to work. It was really terrible. It was like, uh, there there were all these explosions and a helicopter had kind of been blown off course and ended up crashing into them. Um,
1: that's uh, and Jennifer Jason Lee's father.
2: That's right, that's right. But Landis, I mean, Spielberg stopped being friends with him for that. It was like really bad. And... um you know, the episode isn't very good. The segment isn't very good. But Steven Spielberg's is probably the worst. He adapted the classic episode, Kick the Can. It's not on neither of our lists, but it could be. It's a great episode. Um, and he just botched it. He just turned all the the kind of... He just undermined the whole thing. But there are two really good adaptations, um, which I'll be talking about more as as the originals. Uh, Joe Dante's It's a Good Life and George Miller's Nightmare at 20,000 uh, Feet, which I think rivals the original. Um, at any rate, that, that was a moderate success, uh, but it, it was successful enough so that they rebooted the Twilight Zone in, uh, CBS rebooted it in 1985. It ran for four years. It had such writers as Harlan Ellison, George R.R. R. Martin, and J. Michael Straczynski. Uh, I haven't seen any of these, but I don't think it measures up to the original. Uh, there was also a, a kind of anthology film that Matheson and Carol Sterling put together called Rod Serling's lost classics in 1994. There was another reboot of twilight zone in 2002, 2003, which features a sequel to one of the best episodes. That's just an abomination, which I'll be talking about in my kind of as one of my episodes. And then most famously, probably recently there was the 19, the 2019 reboot by Jordan Peele, uh, Season one was relatively positively received. Season two was mixed. Well, you know, uh, I'll talk about that because that also has a kind of sequel to one of the best episodes that isn't very good. Um, and then, of course, fucking M. Night Shyamalan. I mean, his whole career is just mil- is just ripping off Rod Serling yeah. to varying degrees of success. Uh, some of them good, most of them not very good. But, God, the guy's made billions just off of this formula. And of course, we mentioned Black Mirror, which has been on 2011 to the present, which is specifically about the way technology of, will affect us in the future. Uh, that's very Twilight Zone esque. So let's let's jump into it. Let's start with our first episode.
1: Yeah. So we're going to count down uh, our top five, and then we'll we'll talk about maybe some honorable mentions that kind of thing. But my number five on my list is uh, season two, episode six. It's called "Eye of the Beholder." Um, for those of you who are fans of the show, you know, a certain image comes immediately to your mind, which is the big twist of, of the episode. So um, for those, you know, aren't are aware of the plot, the whole thing is kind of a set piece that takes place in a, in a hospital room where the, a woman's face is bandaged and they keep uh, setting up the fact that she's had... Um, you, you know, she's horrible. seems to be horribly disfigured and and doesn't look right. And she's had many surgeries that have been unsuccessful. And they've done this one last surgery to try to, to save her and try to make her look normal. And it's very melodramatic. And, and the the way the video is uh, or the show is cut is you never see any of the doctors or you see the back of their head. You hear their voices. You see their arms, you know, working on her, that kind of stuff. Um and the, the whole thing is, you know, they keep saying, you know, she's, she's very hard to look at, she's very ugly, you know, that if this doesn't work, they're going to send her away to, uh, you know, kind of live with people who are like her uh, as to not, uh, you know, to make life easier for her and uh, not to offend others with her, with, with her uh, you know, her ugliness. This woman is, is very distraught. She very much wants to be, belong she very much psychologically can hear how, like, she is um, just, you know, again, just, just distraught by being, you know, an outsider um, in the society. And so the the denouement of this is that the the doctors are finally ready to take off the bandages to see if the latest operation uh, uh, was a success. And they pull off the bandages, revealing this very attractive, you know, blonde woman. And you're supposed to think, oh, oh my God, it worked. But then they start showing the doctors and the other people, and there's these horrible pig people, you know, with these, these grotesque, uh, twisted faces. And you get the idea that normal in this society are those, uh, you know, pig faced uh, people. And this beautiful woman is the ugly duckling, and that's the eye of beauty being in the eye of the beholder. And of course, at the end, she's, she's so upset and, and tries to run away through the hospital. And, you know, they, they they send somebody from the ugly colony or whatever it is uh, to get her, to take her away, to live with them. And it's this very handsome man who, you know, compared to the pig people is, is equally ugly. But it's these two beautiful humans, you know, at least in our recollect, uh, our telling of it, are sent off to the ugly colony to live without uh, having to, you know, disturb the general population. And uh, anyway, that's the idea um the closing narration i just want to read uh, read it here I, I don't have a clip of this i have clips of others but rod serling says uh, i'll save rod serling impressions for a segment that we have coming up so i'm just going to read this but like uh now now the questions that come to mind where is this place and when is it what kind of world where ugliness is the norm and beauty the deviation from that norm you want an answer the answer is it doesn't make any difference because as the old saying happens to be true beauty is in the eye of the beholder in this year or 100 years hence on this planet or wherever there is human life perhaps out among the stars beauty is in the eye of the beholder a lesson to be learned in the twilight zone so um i mean th- this show when you watch it, it- it's it's very um it- it's very obvious if you know the twist that they're kind of cutting it and filming it to not show anybody. And if you know, there's a twist is it's pretty, you know, it's like, okay, there's clearly not, people are in shadows. They're not showing, you know, faces very, you know, there's a lot of weird uh, angle cuts on, on shoulders and backs of heads. But if you don't know that and you are just kind of watching it without knowing there's this great twist, it's actually shocking when you see these, these people with this makeup and it's really amazingly sophisticated for back in the day, in my opinion.
2: Totally agree. The makeup is incredible in this. And I think it's still shocking to see these pig faces because it's, the makeup is just so well done. Yeah, It's like some of the greatest makeup ever done for television. It still holds up for sure.
1: Yeah. So this is a pretty famous episode. I think, you know, obviously we probably should have said, but it goes without saying that we're going to spoil the shit out of all these. So Oh yeah,
2: yeah. If you haven't seen it, just shut it off right now. Yeah. I mean I still think you could watch Eye of the Beholder. Yeah. And it's still shocking. It is. It's just because of the production value and the way it's told, it's like once you see those faces, we can't even capture how those things look. I mean, it's nuts. It's just nuts. But anyway.
1: What, what's yeah. kind of interesting too, just one one side note here, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you, is the main doctor who is trying to help this woman um character's name is like Janet Tyler is trying to help Janet is actually you know a very sympathetic you know he's empathetic and sympathetic to her he's actually trying to help her he feels bad for her he seems mm-hmm. to actually be a good doctor you know he uh, although you know I'll point out in later in the episode he smokes so you know he, you know the you know doctor smoking type thing which you see actually a lot in TV of that time but yeah, he's actually made to be a, a sympathetic character, you know. Um, uh, emp- he's an empathetic guy and a sympathetic character because he's trying to help her, you know what I mean? You, you're you rooting for this doctor to help this poor woman, um, and he tr- actually tries to, and he feels bad when he can't, you know. And at the end, you could tell that he's sort of bummed out that he, he feels he failed her, you know, and he has to send her away to the, to the quote-unquote, ugly colony. So anyway, um, which I thought was interesting because... Um, you know, they didn't demonize anybody in this, right? Like, I mean, you could argue that a society that, that casts off, quote unquote, disfigured people is not, um, you know, good or whatever it is. But I think that's like modern day moralizations that may, you know, are hard to to, to justify. I think in this particular case, the these were just, it was just an idea of what, what is different, what is normal, you know, those sort of themes, which are revisited a lot in other episodes, but Very, very effective here, if not a little tad over melodramatic at times, but uh, really just like brutal, brutalistic in a sense. And uh, very effective as as sci-fi, horror, macabre, all that stuff. So I'll turn it over to you for your number five.
2: All right. So I have that clip. You play that.
1: Yep. Let me get this together for you here. It is your number five clip is Steel. So here you
0: go. Yeah. I say, you heard of my fighter? Nope. I was almost the world's heavyweight champion once. I, I used to be a heavyweight myself uh, before the law was passed, of course. Yeah, I used to box under the name of uh, Steel Kelly. <laughs> yeah, you know, they kind of call me that because I never got knocked down.
1: There you go.
2: All right. So this is an episode called Steel. It's the uh, second episode of the last season, the fifth season. So this episode um, is basically takes place in the near future from the Twilight Zone in 1968. And boxing has been banned. Uh, boxing was banned in 1968. It's actually the early 70s. And Tim Steele Kelly is a former boxer, and he's got a partner, Paul, who's kind of his partner and mechanic. And at the beginning, we see them wheeling this robot. It's got these little wheels on, on its feet. And we see one of the uh, wheels break off. And we learn that this is a B-2 model named Battling Maxo. Mm. And they're wheeling him to a promoter's office. And Kelly tells them that Maxo had a, you know, he, he just what you see, he, he, that clip, he basically tells them Maxo was, was, a, was champ and, and that he himself was a boxer. But now humans are no longer allowed to box and the promoter is kind of skeptical and just wants to uh, a good fight so we learned that the B2 is a very old model and the latest is the B7 and this battling maxo is going to fight the B7 um and but these guys really need money, you know. It's it's very gritty. It's a very gritty, kind of almost film noiry, pulpy kind of uh plot. Um, so they go to the back room to check things out with uh Kelly sparring with Maxo. Basically, they they turn down his said, he says, turn off the punching or whatever, because obviously this is this robot could really hurt him. And he and they start to spar, and then a spring in Maxo's arm fails, and they can't repair him, so he can't fight. So Kelly says that since they need the money so badly, he says, I'm going to disguise myself as a robot and fight. And Paul says he's crazy. It's a B-7 and he'll murder you. You know, the the other fighter. Yeah. So they kind of make it's cool the way the, the robots look. It's basically actually real guys, but they have their something over their eyes. So their eyes look kind of dead. Yeah. It's really creepy. And so they they kind of do this, this makeup job somehow to steal. And he comes into the ring and the crowd starts heckling him as rattling Maxo. And, um, and then he's, he goes up against B seven, which is Maynard flash and this, they fight and, you know, he's doing okay at first, but then this, this uh, this robot just beats him almost to death. Steel just can't compete with the robot and the promoter ends up since the fight lasted so short, the promoter only ends up paying half of their $500. And, you know, he's just laying on the floor almost dead. And it's kind of there. They said, yeah, we'll 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 take this and we'll go get Max go fixed. But it's like pretty much implied that they're through.
1: Yeah,
2: um, I think this is brilliant for a couple of reasons. One, this is written by Richard. Math- this is based on a Richard Matheson uh, screenplay. And it really shows it really resonates with me because it kind of shows the futility of human ability versus artificial intelligence. And we're seeing this now. I mean, I see these GitHub co-pilot commercials on YouTube and I'm like, okay, I'm pretty much going to be obsolete. My job very soon. Um, And, you know, it's it's also it also kind of talks about um, the brutality of boxing. Like during this time, there were several stories of boxing fatalities and Serling also knew about them firsthand because he had been fighting. Um, So even though it had been written by uh, Matheson, it harkens back to Requiem for a heavyweight. Yeah. Um, and the robots, I just love the way they look. I love the direction. The performance by Ali Marvin as steel is just fantastic. Um, it's just great. And and you know, I just wanted to flag a couple of other uh the Twilight Zone dealt with artificial intelligence and robots, the rise of technology in many episodes. I think one you flagged Uncle Simon. Yep, uh, the mighty Casey about a it's not a very good one, but it's about a robot base player, baseball player, and it kind of goes into artificial intelligence the lateness of the hour about a woman who discovers she's actually a robot invented by her parents. And then one that I really like called The Lonely, which was season one, episode seven, which features Jack Warden as a criminal who's banished to an asteroid uh, for life and given this female robot later.
1: I remember that. That's a great one.
2: It's a great one, right? His sentence is over. He ends up falling in love with her and then his sentence is overturned. And they're going to bring him back to Earth, but there's not enough room in the ship for, for her. Like, they can only handle so much weight. So he's, like, kind of almost thinking he'll stay, but then the pilot just shoots her and kills her. It's really good. Really fucking, like, goes to... Sh- I mean, it just deals with shit like Westworld deals with now. You know, contemporary shows are dealing with this. And the Twilights Zone not already covered all this. And better, in, too. In just, and better and just as, you know, in ways that are even more relevant today than they were then yeah. they were just ahead of the curve. So I just love the way they cover the subject. And steel is just one of those dark host episodes. It's one I never saw as a kid. And I only saw it like maybe five or six years ago when I was watching on Netflix, I was like, Oh, what's this one. And I just fucking loved it. It always stuck with me. Anyway, that's my number five.
1: And uncle Simon, I will just mention that one here. It's kind of on my list of, you know, other honorable mentions, but it's a really creepy one where the, this inventor, this old guy, is a is complete asshole and, and a rich kind of inventor type. And he lives with his niece who takes care of him, who hates him. And he's a complete bastard to her. But she sticks around thinking that you know she's going to inherit all his money. And she winds up kind of throwing him down the stairs because she can't take it anymore. Is all happy because she's getting away with it. Um, but the, in the terms of the will, she will, doesn't inherit everything. But in terms of Will, she has to take care of his inventions, including uh, a robot that he made of himself that that tr- and that treats her the same way that he did. You know, kind of that twist. <laughs> it, 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 it's a little goofy, but it's. It, isn't it Robbie
2: the robot? They use Robbie the robot. Yeah, it uh, looks from, like that. It does look. Yeah, like I think that. it's the same robot from yeah. uh, Lost in Space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's I love that that that. You know he the the twist on that that it's this- you know she essentially can't kill this thing no, either she can't
1: she, um, can, that's and she needs line. to she needs to deal with it too to keep all the money which you know anyway it, it's uh it, it's a pretty good one it, it's a little goofy, but it's, it's pretty good this is where he's like a demand the ro- the old guy used to demand that she make him go, hot chocolate Barbara make me hot chocolate oh, yeah. and the robot does it too, and that's kind of the twist at the end where it starts learning. It starts revealing more and more of the uncle's uh, personality uh, over time as it sort of gets the kinks uh, worked out. So anyway. Awesome. All right. Uh, that was uh, Steel was number, your number five. All right. So, so
2: now we're on your number four.
1: My number four is the one you mentioned um, earlier. It's called Time Enough at Last. It's a season one, episode eight. And it stars uh, Burgess Meredith. It's like, rock! He's going to kill you, Rock. You know, yeah. Burgess Meredith. He's in one. a
2: few of these, but this is his most deservedly, his most renowned yeah. one.
1: So uh, the, the plot of this, I, I, this was a very, very visual episode. So I don't have a, a really good audio clip of this. But like the, he plays this very, very nerdy guy uh, who's a bank teller. His name is Henry Bemis um he he wears these super super ridiculously thick glasses you know and he's obsessed with reading he's always reading a book he's getting in trouble at work because he's not paying attention because he's reading a book his wife is this you know shrew who you know can't stand him obviously and um you know is he's always reading and she's trying to hide his books from him so he can't read just to punish him because she's such a bitch you know, and he's this poor guy. He doesn't want to socialize. All he wants to do, he's just in love with literature and books and the imagination and stories and, and things like that. And the the whole, so the whole plot of this one is, you know, this poor guy, all he wants to do is be left alone to read. It's the only thing in life that gives him pleasure. Everybody else, his boss is on him. His wife is on him about, you know, being, you know, kind of living in this fantasy world. He's at the bank one day and he is going to take his lunch break and he's looking for a place to read, of course. And he goes into the bank vault and uh, closes the door, which doesn't seem like a good idea, but he closes the door. And while he's in there reading on his lunch break, there's a nuclear war and he's saved by being in the bank vault and he emerges. And the whole entire world seemingly is, is, is destroyed. It's not very accurate. The it, I, I mean, there's a lot of uh, episodes. There's another one that I'll mention about called the Shelter, where this whole idea of you know bomb shelters for nuclear war, people don't understand that if there's a nuclear war, you want to be incinerated instantly. You're going to die of radiation poison or starvation, so you might as well just get killed instantly. But nevertheless, he walks around this world that many things are still standing. There's rubble, but there's a couple things uh, still standing. He finds like a, a market where there's a bunch of canned goods. And more importantly to him, he finds the public library. And many of the books, the building is mostly bombed out, but there's books strewn everywhere. And he there's nobody around. He has food, he has the books, and he's in heaven. And he goes around, and he's uh, stacking all the books into different piles. He's going to read this one on this week, and this group on this month, and this the next month. And he has a stack of food, he has his books. And, seemingly not worried about a nuclear winter or radiation poisoning or anything else. There's nobody around. And he is just about to dig into his first stack of books with the food that he has. And he bends over and his big thick glasses fall off and break. And he can't see or read without them. And now he's stuck alive, alone in this nuclear uh, war, you know, uh, war-ravaged land with all these books and food, but no ability to read those books. And he is now in a version of hell and in the Twilight Zone. So that is uh, Time Enough to Last. It's a very, very famous episode. It's always always makes people's lists of the top ones oh, in yeah. the series. And uh, it is indeed one of my favorites as well. So thoughts on this one?
2: Yeah. So I have a, I have a different perspective on this one when, than I did when I was a kid. So when I was a kid, I related to him. I just wanted to read. I wanted to be left alone. You know, and I just... Could completely relate to this, but looking at it now, I actually think he's kind of a dick. You know, he's, he's at his office. He's actually reading while he's supposed to be working. Yeah. Like there's someone trying to get his attention as a teller and his wife. I mean, there's this incredible scene that she, she's like, read me some poetry. And he goes to read the book and she's just marked it up and slashed it. And it's like, it's so she's, uh, painted as such the shrew, but I almost feel like we're seeing things through his eyes. Yeah. Right. So she may, probably in reality may not be that bad, but to him, she's the ultimate villain. But to her, he's this guy who never pays attention to her. Yeah. You know, so you could kind of see it as that. And in a way, he kind of gets what he deserves. He's you know, it's kind of, it's kind of also that. He's overjoyed that everything has been destroyed. All he cares about is his books. Yeah, that's right. You know, so in a way, it's kind of like he gets what he deserves in a, in a weird way. I, I, you know, again, I still kind of relate to him, but I also see the bad side of him. And it's just, yeah, it's an incredible episode. This was um, Pace Magazine had this excellent article ranking all the episodes. This was their number one. Uh, oh no, I think I of the beholder might've been their number one or, but, but those two are two of the ones you have actually, I think three of these that you have are always top five. And I think I have like one or two that are sometimes in the top five, but this one is most often number one. And it's the one, when I think about the twilight zone, this one was the first thing I thought of.
1: Yeah. You know,
2: it's. I've always loved this episode, and obviously, you know that you could say, "Well, he could probably find some other glasses or use a magnifying glass." It doesn't matter. You get the you get the point of uh, the episode.
1: You and know, he's and not going to find it. Unable to see. Oh yeah, because
2: he's so his gla- glasses are such Coke bottles. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> he can't. He can, He's like feeling around. Yeah. Yeah, you get the sense that he's almost legally blind.
1: Exactly. All right. So on to your number uh, four.
2: All right. Let's play the clip.
1: Why, don't I look all right? You look fine, you look just fine. It's just that when
0: you were in here before... Before? What do you mean, before? I've never been in here before. Honey, you were just in here a few minutes ago. Me? I've never been in here before. What's the matter with this place, anyway? Somebody keeps taking my bag, somebody tells me I keep asking about the bus, and now you tell me I've been in here before.
2: There you go. All right. So this is mirror image uh, season one, episode 21. And basically this story is Millicent Barnes is waiting for a bus at a station. And she notices the bus is late and goes to ask the ticket agent when it will arrive. And he annoyed tells her it's her third time asking this. She then notices that her bag is no longer where she left it, but is now behind the ticket counter again. The ticket agent says she put it there. Then when she goes to the bathroom and runs into a restroom attendant, that's the clip we played. uh, She looks into the bathroom mirror and also sees another version of herself sitting there, giving her this malevolent look. Um, She then meets another passenger named Paul, who's played by actor Martin Milner, who would later be on what? Adam 12. 12. Um, And she explains the weird shit that's been happening to her, right? So essentially, this is like a doppelganger story. Uh, And the bus arrives, right? And they start to board. But then Millicent sees her doppelganger sitting on the bus and, again, looking at her with an evil kind of malevolent look. And she runs back into the bus station and faints. When she wakes up, she kind of has figured out what's happening. She explains to Paul, who stayed behind when she missed the bus, probably because she was kind of hot, he was trying to trying to get something. I don't know um, about her theory of parallel universes, sometimes coming together. And then these other versions of um, themselves enter our world somehow and try to take over. He says that sounds a little metaphysical to him (laughs) and tells her he's going to call a friend to give them a ride into the city since they missed the bus. But there is no friend. He actually calls the police since he thinks she needs to be committed. The police take her away. Paul settles down to wait for the next bus in the morning. He's actually going to get some shut-eye. Then he notices his own bag is missing. And he quickly sees another man running out of the bus station and notices it's him. Mm. And with a malevolent smile, he tries to chase it and he ends up yelling after it, but it gets away. So this is episode is just sim- completely simple, primitive, um, you know, very... Uh, limited in in what it's trying to do but it's completely effective it's so scary um especially because the acting is so good vera miles plays millicent barnes and martin milner you know of adam 12 he does a really good job as paul and they their doppelgangers really do look kind of evil and uh you know it's just a creepy idea
1: goatees or that that no
2: No, no, we'll get, that's (laughs) funny. We'll mention that in in the future, but essentially, yeah, that might've been inspired another writer who we're going to talk about, uh, to come up with that idea, but, but no, so essentially they look identical, right. Except their expressions. Um, it's funny because the inspiration for this was that Serling happened to be at an airport and he noticed in a distance, someone who looked just like himself. Uh, and he was like, Whoa, that's me. And then con closer inspection, he saw that it was someone younger and quote-unquote more attractive. Nick <laughs> so about this idea of it was replacing him. And of course, everyone who's listening to this who's, you know, probably knows that this is the direct inspiration for Jordan Peele's 2019 film, Us. I've never seen Us, but it seems like kind of a minimal story for a two-hour movie or a 90-minute movie. But it's great as a like a 21-minute episode it's just really scary and i i love how they do something very simple and it's just completely effective and that music that played in the clip i mean i love the use of music in this show it's just so creepy so anyway that's my number four um yeah so let's move on to number three
1: yeah no that's a good one i remember seeing that one and you're right it's very it's it is it's so well done it's it's uh very 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 creepy so um okay my number 3 is season 5 episode 6. It's a it's an episode entitled Living Doll. Um, most people probably know this one because of the one of the main characters of it, uh Taki Tina. Uh, this is a uh episode that stars uh Telly Silvalis from uh, Kojak fame as a very uh very not good guy, very creepy guy who the plot of it is, um, he is married uh, to a woman who has a daughter. Um, so this this young little girl, three, four years old, something like that, is his stepdaughter. He's kind, of, not kind of. He is a complete jerk. He's a complete jerk to the wife. He's a, he's even more of a jerk to the little girl. And it's and you know it's said in the episode that, that he and the and his wife can't have a child of their own. Um, for whatever reason, and it's sort of intimated that he is the reason that like he's unable to father a child, and it's causing um, issues. Um, the opening narration I want to read. Um, a, a, this is a Rod Serling uh, opening narration. I'm going to play a clip in a second, but not of this. And he says, uh, "Takitina, a doll that does everything, a lifelike creation of plastic and springs and painted smile. To Eric Stretor, she is the most." unwelcome addition to his household. But without her, he'd never enter the Twilight Zone. So the I, Twilight I'm, Zone. The Twilight Zone. So I'm going to play a clip here of uh, some of the highlights from this episode.
0: She's alive, Daddy, and her name is Taki Tina. My name is Taki Tina, and I love you very much. Will you shut that thing off? My name is Talkie Tina, and I think I could even hate you. My name is Talkie Tina, and you'll be sorry. My name is Talkie Tina, and I'm beginning to hate you. My name is Eric Strader, and I'm going to get rid of you. You wouldn't dare. Hello. My name is Talking
1: Tina, and I'm going to kill you. <laughs> so there you go. Some some uh, melodramatic scenes from the episode with that, with the heart music. That's supposed to be the creepy uh, heart music. Um, so the, the episode is really uh, the little girl. Uh, he gets uh, uh, this doll from her mom. They go shopping, brings home this doll, Talking Tina, and it's a creepy doll. The little girl loves it. And the, the stepfather, Telly Savalas, really hates it and, and gets creeped out by it, tries to get rid of it, tries to hide it, tries to cut its neck off and can't, tries to lock it in the trash can and it escapes. And it ultimately um, does him in as promised. Um, you know, Taki Tina does actually uh, manage to trip uh, Telly Savalas, going down the stairs and, and he dives the the more interesting thing about the episode is is that it is um, supposed to be... My read of it is the little girl is just looking for acceptance. Her real father is not around. Biological father is not around. She has a stepfather now who she wants acceptance from, and he's nothing but awful to her. And, you know, is just really just a, a cruel bastard in a lot of ways to her. And this doll, you know, you can see is an extension of this little girl's alter ego is just trying to p- protect herself, protect her mother... Treats the he treats the mother poorly too, um, and although it's kind of funny that the the woman who plays the mother, she's wearing very tight pants the whole time and like high heels and you know all this this kind of stuff very interesting uh, wardrobe. But anyway, it's it's sort of shown that this doll is like an extension of the little girl's alter ego and trying to protect her and the mother and kills the the, the stepfather and of course in the in the twilight zone. So. Again, right. she
2: doesn't she she's on the stairs and he trips over her. Yeah, That's, that's how, how it was, was right? So right.
1: He, he uh tries to go downstairs and Takitina is on the stairs, he tripped over her, falls down the stairs and dies. And and then Takitina is at the bottom, and the mother picks it up, and Takitina sort of warns the mother, it's like, Hey, you know, you're on, you're on notice now. Uh you better be good to me too. And the mother realizes that because the whole episode. Uh, Telly Zavala is complaining that the doll, doll is threatening him and talking to him, and the wife is like, "Are you even sane? What are you doing? You're you're nuts. Why are you so afraid of a fucking oh, yeah. doll?" And then at the twist, the twist at the end is the doll threatens the mother too, right? And again, the alter ego of the little girl saying, "Hey, mom, uh, maybe you should choose better next time and not, you know, uh, get with some creepy, you know, abusive sort of dude to be my stepfather." That was sort of my read on it. So anyway, what do you think of this one?
2: Oh, uh, it's scary. I think it's really creepy. I always, uh, this one always stuck with me as a kid. It scared me, kind of.
1: Yeah, me too. And it's it's, 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 really, good. it's yeah. really good. It's really good. I just want to read the closing narration on this one, too. I, I, I love the opening and closing narrations on these. And, and Rod Serling says, of course, we all know dolls can't really talk and they certainly can't commit murder. But to a child caught in the middle of turmoil and conflict, a doll can become many things. A friend, defender, guardian, especially a doll like Takitina who did talk and did commit murder in the misty region of the twilight zone the twilight zone so there you go that's number 3 for me
2: okay so i guess we're on to my number 3 then let's play the clip It's nothing, Mrs. Wilson. Can I get you anything? All right, so this is episode, uh, season five, there episode three, a Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. This is another uh, Richard Matheson episode. So uh, the opening of this episode starts out with Portrait of a Frightened Man, Mr. Robert Wilson. Uh, so Robert Wilson, played by, of course, the legendary William Shatner, Uh, is afraid of flying. And this is his first time flying since he suffered a nervous breakdown on another flight. But he's just gotten out of the sanitarium and he's traveling with his wife and his psychiatrist has told him he's cured and good to fly. Uh, He's a little freaked out at first to be sitting on an exit row, but decides it's okay. Uh, So his wife decides to take a, a kind of sedative and go to sleep. And he looks out the window and he sees this curious ape-like creature on the wing and tells his wife and the stewardess, when they look out, they see nothing. So that's the clip you, you heard. So he calms down. He gets his glass of water. He looks again and sees the, now sees this creature, which is a gremlin, we are led to believe, pulling up a panel on the plane. And he really freaks out this time and they call the pilot over too, but they don't see anything. So the stewardess gives him a sedative, but he only pretends to swallow it. Mm. Um, And there's one really great scene where he, he, I think it's before this, where he looks out the window and the creature's face is just pressed up against the glass looking at him. And it's just this crazy looking kind of goofy looking thing. So he, he decides that he's going to do something about it. And he steals a sleeping police officer's revolver, straps himself into the seat uh, so that he can't be pulled out by the window and opens the exit. Of course, the uh, because of the cabin pressure, things just go crazy. He gets pulled out onto the wing, barely hanging on, and he shoots the, the gremlin creature. And then we see him. He's strapped to a gurney as the plane has landed. And, uh, obviously he's being, you know, it's implied that he's being taken off to an insane asylum, but as the camera pans over the plane wing, we see the torn open panel that, uh, you know, evidence that he was right. So this is a, this is a great episode. I really relate to this episode because I fucking hate flying (laughs) and I've definitely had my moments of being afraid of flying, but I also... It's just really well made. It's directed by Richard Donner, written by Richard Matheson. I think that Shatner's kind of frenetic acting style is perfect for this role. Um, You know, he just embodies this role. And I actually wanted to call out another episode that he was in from the first season called Nick of Time. That season, or sorry, season two, episode seven, which is also written by Matheson, which is very similar, that concerns... um, a honeymooning couple, they're stuck in a small Ohio town waiting for their car to be repaired, and they go into this diner and they come across this little fortune telling machine. Yeah. That's the, the little devil head, yeah, the bobbing That's an, devil.
1: Awesome. That's an awesome. Yeah, and
2: Shatner play, Shatner kind of is an obsessive compulsive character, and he keeps asking the machine for predictions, and he's just scared into being not doing anything because the machine predicts a few things correctly. And um, of course, the twist of that one is that they end up kind of leaving the town and deciding to leave anyway. But then there's this other couple that come in and it's implied that they're actually they've actually been stuck into the town for maybe weeks or months, uh, uh, you know, prisoners of of this machine's decisions. Yeah. Um. But I think Shatner is perfect in both roles. I think there's some of the best things he's ever done because of his just his the anxiety felt by these characters is just palpable with his kind of almost overacting that really works. Um, yeah. And I love the the, the monster, too. Um, I think the fact that it's kind of almost comical looking makes it seem more like a paranoid, delusional fantasy. So it kind of works. Now, I will say that the remake by George Miller in Twilight Zone, the movie, is probably rivals this. Um, it stars John Lithgow in the Shatner role, and the monster just looks a lot scarier. Mm. Um, and it's just George Miller's just a master director. So I think it's it's one of the few times a remake really does live up to the original. But I still prefer the original because I just really like Shatner and I really like, uh, you know, it's just short and sweet. It's a perfect episode. So this is one of my, you know, one I had to call it. This is another one that's usually enlisted in at least the top 10 episodes of all time.
1: Yeah, definitely. So that's my number three. Definitely. All right. Good. Uh, very good one, too. I agree with everything you said. And I actually, that Nick of Time one that you called out that he's also in, I also agree. It's a it's a great one and a real creepy one. And when I, I remember that devil head machine that like whoever, whoever oh, decided yeah. to use that, that made <laughs> the episode. Like that creepy fucking thing made the episode, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Um All right, so my number two is uh, season three, episode nine, and it's called Death's Head Revisited. And I'm gonna open by playing uh, the opening narration from Rod.
0: Mr. Schmidt recently arrived in a small Bavarian village which lies eight miles northwest of Munich. A picturesque, delightful little spot one time known for its scenery but more recently related to other events, having to do with some of the less positive pursuits of man. Human slaughter, torture, misery and anguish. Mr. Schmidt, as we will soon perceive, has a vested interest in the ruins of a concentration camp. For once, some 17 years ago, his name was Gunther Lutze. He held the rank of a captain in the SS. He was a black uniformed, strutting animal whose function in life was to give pain. And like his colleagues of the time, he shared the one affliction most common amongst that breed known as Nazis. Yeah. He walked the
1: earth without um, a heart. Again, the, the narration continues, but I, I stopped it there. So this one, to me, is... It usually doesn't make the top lists, uh, you know, the top ten lists and stuff like that. But to me, this was one of the most haunting, you know, brutalistic ones of the in- entire series. Um, the plot, as you heard, was this uh, former SS captain who uh, apparently escaped to uh, Argentina or South America somewhere and has come back um, after, you know, some 17 years to, because he sort of missed it. He missed being important. He missed being, um, you know, somebody who had control. Um, it sort of uh, implied that his life currently isn't so great, and he wanted to come back to kind of relive his uh, former glory, and he goes uh, back to uh, uh, Dachau uh, uh, concentration camp. And is uh, walking around, and he is looking at the, the ruins of the camp. Um, the, the camp still stands. Uh, apparently, it is just sort of available for people to kind of walk around in, for whatever reason. We'll get into that in a second. And he starts, uh, you know, kind of looking at things, remembering all the fond times he had there. Apparently, um, and then he sees one of the former prisoners there. This uh, prisoner named Becker. Um, and the, Becker is kind of standing there, starts to talk to him, and he he greets him warmly. I, I mean, uh, the, the SS guy Lutz greets Becker warmly, which is really weird. It's like, oh, it's good to see you. You know, the, this, this poor person who was you know uh, brutalized and you know tortured by this this SS monster. And uh, the, as the the plot unfolds, uh, basically, uh, you know, it's kind of like him. You know, he's being Reminded of all the atrocities there, and, and the SS guy is saying, Yeah, well, that was the war. Now things are better. You know, we're doing okay. I'm doing okay. You're doing okay, Becker, too. And uh, then, you know, Becker starts reminding him of all the horrible suffering and murder and, and, and uh, torture and all these things that happened there. And they tell uh, him and other prisoners start appearing. And uh, they say, hey, you're going to be put on trial for crimes against humanity. And he tries to escape. The SS guy tries to escape, can't escape. And they go on uh, to, uh, you know, with a trial, of course, he's guilty. Um, and the, the, the punishment uh, is that he has to experience all the tortures and murders and bullets and beatings and hangings that he's inflicted on all these poor people who were um, in that camp. There's one uh, great... Um, twist in this, of course, as well, where he, um, you know, before the punishment is mer- is meted out, he, um, said, he he comes to the realization he's talking to, this, to this Becker, who's sort of guiding him through this uh, trial process, and he comes to the realization he remembers that he actually killed Becker um, when the camp was close to being uh, liberated and he realizes something is afoot, that it's not really Becker, and he's, of course, in, in, in the Twilight Zone. Haunting, haunting episode, really well executed, creepy as fuck. And uh, I want to play um, the, and the, the end of it is, you know, uh, you, the SS guy Lutza is, is meant to forever um, experience the tortures um, that he inflicted on others. And in the end of it, of course, um, the police come and find him kind of insane in the in the ruins of Dachau, Dachau uh, tra- concentration camp. And uh, they 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 cart him away uh, to um, you know an institution where he's going to suffer presumably forever. So here's the the close.
0: Why does it still stand? Why do we keep it standing? There is an answer to the doctor's question. All the dacos must remain standing. The Dachaus, the Belsens, the Buchenwalds, the Auschwitzes, all of them. They must remain standing because they are a monument to a moment in time when some men decided to turn the earth into a graveyard. Into it they shoveled all of their reason, their logic, their knowledge, but worst of all, their conscience. And the moment we forget this, the moment we cease to be haunted by its remembrance, then we become the gravediggers. Something to dwell on and to remember. Not only in the twilight zone, but wherever men walk, God's earth.
1: How fucking awesome is that?
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think what's interesting about this one is it's very, it's not very subtle. It's not hiding anything. But I think he's just like, look, I have to just get this message. Yeah,
1: out. exactly. Yeah, like,
2: and it it's so powerful. And there's other ones where he does this where it doesn't work as well, which I'll talk about one of them that's very related to this. But uh, I think this one, you know, it's definitely up there. I think in the Paste magazine, this was in the top 10. Oh, was it? Uh might have been in the top 50. I mean, some of the ones I think belong in the top 10 were like in the 20s for them. So it was just, you know, it's just someone's opinion. But I think that one is definitely notable. And it was pretty ballsy to do so just so recently after World War II, you know, yeah. to do something like
1: that. Yeah, and in my final evaluation, I'll talk a little bit about why this episode happened and 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 the influence of the holocaust and world war ii and stuff like that on the twilight zone and, and rod Serling as well so anyway on to uh your number two
2: all right play the clip this will say it all i think yeah
0: we will be taking off in three minutes mr chambers don't get on that ship the rest of the book it's a cookbook <laughs>
1: There you go. Okay, so
2: this is to serve man season 3 episode 24. When I thought about the Twilight Zone, uh, you know, along with Time Enough at Last, this is the next one I thought of. Yeah. Um, this, this is the is most another, famous
1: one ever, I think.
2: It probably the be. most famous yeah. one. It's such I love the dark humor of this one. Um, I think, you know, it's it's really funny. Uh, and but also just entertaining. Uh, I love the way it's told kind of in flashback. I don't know who Michael chambers is actually talking to when he does the story, but he's kind of talking to us. but anyway, so this this is to serve man as I mentioned, this is um, considers uh, you know the story of Michael chambers, who is a uh, cryptographer, mm-hmm. right? So he is the, the the episode opens with him in a Spartan room with a cot. And you hear a voice offer him a meal that's delivered through a small aperture in the wall, which he refuses. And then he starts to narrate how he got there. Right. And the story begins with UFOs sighted over the Earth. And we learn of the arrival of an alien race called the canamets nine foot tall aliens who all look identical, you know, with giant brains and who speak through telepathy. One Kanamit arrives at the United Nations and offers to share tons of technology that will end hunger and stop warfare with the human race, and also to organize back and forth trips to their planet. Uh, Leaders are, of course, skeptical initially, but the Kanamit, without any explanation, leaves a book with a title on the cover in the Kanamit language. Michael Chambers is one of a group of cryptographers assigned to decipher the book, and he works with another um, woman named Patty. Now it's months later, and because the technological promises have come to fruition, and one of the Canemets has actually even taken a polygraph and passed, the government is no longer skeptical. And we learn that many humans have taken the Canemets up on their offer to travel to their planet, and the U.S. armed forces have been completely disbanded, and the Canemets have embassies in every major Earth city. Patty figures out the title of the book is called "To Serve Man," which seems pretty uh, obvious what that means. Uh, so it's kind of like, that's where we leave it. She's still looking up, you know, what the book is. She's still trying to translate the book based on that. Um, Chambers plans to visit the planet. And while he's waiting in line to get to the ship, it's funny. Each passenger is actually weighed. And we see the cannabis kind of smile and nod as a larger passenger. It kind of gets. (laughs) Um, And just then, Patty runs up and yells, Mr. Chambers, you know, that was the clip we heard. Right. Don't get on the ship. It's a cookbook. Uh, He struggles to break free, but is overpowered. And then we see Chambers back in the present. He's uh, he's offered food again in the room. And we hear the voice say, we wouldn't want you to lose weight. And then he breaks the fourth wall and turns towards us and asks, what about you? are you still on earth or on the ship with me? It doesn't matter because sooner or later we'll all be on the menu. And then he finally gives in and voraciously devours the food. I mean, fucking black comedy at its finest. Um, You know, most people know this one. Like you said, it's, it's, probably the most famous twist ending of any episode. It's been, there's been tons of pop cultural references to this. Um, Including you The know,
1: Simpsons, of course, right? The
2: Simpsons, of course, right? Yeah. It's just, I just love the pulpy narration. Everything about this, the storytelling. It's a based on a, a original story by sci-fi writer Damon Knight. Um, Another notable thing is, of course, the condiments are all played by actor Richard Keel, who would become famous later for playing the villain Jaws in the James Bond films of the 70s. Um, You know, obviously it's one of the best episodes of the series Um, now. The Jordan Peele show did do a sequel to this, which is ridiculous, because how would there be a sequel to this episode? Well, there's an episode called You Might Also Like. And I just read the synopsis of this, and it just seems really stupid. It doesn't seem to be related to this at all, except the Kanemets are now you know, ruling Earth, and they give people whatever they want. And it's kind of a comment on human susceptibility to advertising. But it's like, wouldn't we all have been eaten by now?
1: Probably. I mean it
2: just makes no sense to do a kind of, I think they were just trying to tie themselves to the greatness. Now obviously the Twilight Zone revisited alien invasion many times. I think you're going to talk about uh, probably the best example of this other uh, maybe along with this episode, but there's also, I really like one called will the real Martian please stand up, which is kind of another almost play like set piece set in a diner uh, that has really great twist ending. And is really a great black comedy. So yeah, this is one of my favorites. Do you have anything else to say about this one?
1: I on the list that I've seen in the past, this is usually number one or close to it is yeah. like the top episode of the, of the series. It's certainly the most famous And for all the reasons you articulate, I love it, too. It's hilarious and um, really well done and just very artful. Like, it's just excellence all around, in my opinion. I
0: like it.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: um, All right. So my number one, you you sort of alluded to it. It's an episode uh, that, uh, wow, when I think of The Twilight Zone and I think of how creepy it could get and how uh, prophetic it actually is in so many ways, This always comes to mind. It's called The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. It was season one, episode 22. Um, The opening narration is, I'll read it, and um, I'm going to talk a little bit about it, and I'll play a a clip uh, of how it ends. And so um, the opening narration is Maple Street, USA, late summer, a tree-lined little world of front porch gliders, barbecues, and the laughter of children and the bell of an ice cream vendor at the sound of the roar and the flash of light will be precisely 6.43 p.m. on Maple Street. Um, The the narration continues, and, you know, the neighbors look overhead and heard something that sort of sounds outerworldly, and they're kind of wondering, was it a meteor? Was it a plane? Was it, you know, they they don't know what it is. Um, This is Maple Street on a late Saturday afternoon, Maple Street in the last calm and reflective moment before the monsters came. And so it's a typical set that they use. It's like the, you know, Maple Street, Main Street, Elm Street, you know, all those sorts of things. It looks just like the set of many of the episodes of supposed to be this like uh, suburban, you know, peaceful bliss and all that. And weird shit starts happening on the street. Uh, The lights go out. The power goes out. Weird sounds are happening. And if you're aware of this episode, you know what happens next, like um, uh, different sort of strange things start uh, going on. There's a little boy who suggests that what they heard was a spaceship It was an invader because he's a sci-fi fan, obviously, and, and talking about, you know, something he read in a science fiction story and that the aliens are here to invade. At first, people are sort of uh, sort of laughing at this and saying, oh, Kyle, little Jimmy, you know, of, of course, uh, this can't be that. But then they start thinking about it, start getting in their head. The lights on certain people's houses go, go on. They've tried to drive off to go investigate. Cars don't work. But then suddenly one of the neighbor's cars does work. And they're like, well, why does your car work? And none of our cars it doesn't, you know, our cars don't work. And why is the lights on in your house and not ours? And then they start saying, well, maybe you are actually the the alien that's here, you know, ahead of time kind of to, you know, uh, you, you know, the, the uh, away team, uh, the forward team to, to, to sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, grease the skids for the invasion. That was the story the little boy told. And little by little, weirder things start happening, louder and louder noises. It gets dark, it gets creepier, and the neighbors all start turning on one another, and, and including um, the, the kind of ending is one of the neighbors goes off to the next street to see if the power is on, you know, in the next neighborhood over, and comes back and is walking down the street in the dark, and one of the neighbors thinks it's the alien, with a, has a shotgun, and shoots him. And they run up and say, hey, you just shot the neighbor, and what the hell are you doing? You know, and, and chaos has taken mob rules, um, you know, as Dio would get very excited about, um, and so forth and so on. Um, when you listen to fools like they did on uh on Maple Street here, the mob definitely did uh rule. So the I wanna play for you um the uh the ending here. So oh by the way. What are, the clip I'm setting up here is it pull, the camera pulls back from Maple Street up to the hills surrounding Maple Street, and you see a flying saucer and two aliens sitting there with like some kind of control panel. and it's uh, obvious that they've been uh, at the dials here, turning the lights on and off, making cars stop and start, um, you know making strange noises, making you know things happen on Maple Street. and that's uh, the setup to this uh, clip.
0: understand the procedure now. Just stop a few of their machines and radios and telephones and lawnmowers. Throw them into darkness for a few hours and then sit back and watch the pattern. And this pattern is always the same? With few variations. They pick the most dangerous enemy they can find. And it's themselves. All we need to do is sit back and watch... Then I take it this place, this Maple Street, is not unique. By no means. Their world is full of Maple Streets. And we'll go from one to the other and let them destroy themselves. One to the other. One to the other. One to the other. The tools of conquest do not necessarily come with bombs and explosions and fallout. There are weapons that are simply thoughts, attitudes, prejudices to be found only in the minds of men. For the record, prejudices can kill and suspicion can destroy, and a thoughtless, frightened search for a scapegoat has a fallout all of its own for the children and the children yet unborn. And the pity of it is that these things cannot be confined. To the Twilight Zone.
1: Creepy as fuck, huh?
2: Yeah, this this is like a work of genius, this episode. This I mean, is another one that's gotta be one of the best, best ones ever.
1: The this the thing about this is, you know, you know, people listening to this episode, you can probably think of a thousand things that are, you know, like this. And and, and I'll talk about you mentioned George Orwell, obviously. Uh, before I'll talk about that when we do our evaluations a little bit here, but you know, when I when I when I rewatched this episode recently, the first thing I thought about was like social media and like mm-hmm. the way the you know like the Russians tried to manipulate the election in two thousand sixteen. Oh, yeah. And there, I mean, you can go throughout history and just go. This is an example. This is an example. This is an example. Uh, about yeah
2: obviously um, the red scare had just happened right red scare the, is the house example. on an american yep. activities committee and all yep. that I'm sure that was a commentary on that a hundred percent yep but yep. just human nature in general it's it's just such a succinct and potent uh way of summarizing that you know it's brilliant
1: exactly exactly what you just said um human nature and that will be the topic of uh what I have to say in our, in uh, my evaluation. So I will uh, turn it over to you to hit your number one.
2: Okay. Before we go to number one, my wife just texted me um, that you know, to serve man is actually based so so she just texted me this i think she's listening to what we're saying here um so it's actually not an original idea it was actually lifted from the chronicles of narnia so in book 6 of the chronicles of narnia which is the called the silver chair there is one scene where um a group of human children are doted upon by a group of friendly giants and then one of the one of the kids stumbles across a book in the kitchen called To Serve Man.
1: Ah, nice. Yeah. So
2: it was actually based on that, which is kind of cool. Um, let's see. Where does she have this? Oh yeah. Man, this elegant little biped has long been valued as a delicacy. It forms a traditional part of the autumn feast and is served between the fish and the joint. So it's kind of it's kind of a quote. But it's like, yeah, I don't know if the um if, if the, the to serve man thing is a real quote, that was just someone saying it. But it was just kind of funny that she brought that up because I think she had remembered that from the books. Anyway, we'll get to the Chronicles of Narnia at some point. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, but at any rate, let's go to number one. Let's play the clip.
0: You're a bad man. You're a very bad man. And you keep thinking bad thoughts about me.
2: Okay, this episode, I think, will always be my favorite Twilight Zone episode. I think it is the most fucked up, terrifying thing of all time. It is about, it is called It's a Good Life. It's season three, episode eight, and it's about what power can do in the wrong hands. <laughs> so basically, we learn about a character named Anthony Freeman, a six year old with godlike powers. And he has destroyed, either destroyed the rest of the world or just isolated his little town of Peaksville, Ohio, from the rest of it. Anthony makes it so essentially the people in the town live a 19th century life, growing their own food with some difficulty and cars and electronics no longer work. Everyone is constantly forcing a smile and telling Anthony that he's great and everything that he does is good. Even when he makes monstrous creatures like three-headed gophers, which is not shown on screen, it's just implied, and then just murders them. Uh, they live in constant fear of him, even his parents. We learn that anyone who has displeased him in any way has been banished to the cornfield, which presumably means they are dead or worse. Yeah. We learned that Aunt Amy, who he liked and was particularly close to, has had her vocal cords damaged by him because she tried to sing. And while Anthony loves instrumental music, he can't abide any singing at all. Anthony is also upset that no one brings their children over to play with him anymore, but is told that's because they are afraid to, since he's banished many of them to the (laughs) cornfield. But it's very good that he did this. Now, one night per week, Anthony makes TV for them. It's TV night, and everyone comes over to watch. But the TV he makes is just these fighting Triceratops, You know, there's just these two dinosaurs (laughs) fighting, just bloodying each other. It's blood, bloody, crude and violent and seemingly tedious. And everyone is forcing a smile, pretending to enjoy it. They say it's better than the old TV they used to have. Uh, There's at one point a dog barking and Anthony, all of a sudden the dog stops and the adults are horrified to learn that he's just sent it to the cornfield. Um, now, on this TV night, the adults are celebrating another neighbor, Don Hollis's birthday, and he gets two presents, a bottle of brandy, which he claims he hasn't had in years because there's fewer and fewer items left in this barren world that Anthony has created, and a Perry Como record. But we learn that he can't play the record now because of Anthony's hatred of singing. Another neighbor, Pat Riley, has played piano at Anthony's insistence. And Mr. Hollis starts drinking, hitting the bottle more and more and starts to get belligerent. He wants to listen to his record, but his wife stops him. But then as Riley plays Happy Birthday, Hollis starts to sing angrily. And that's when uh, that's when Anthony uh, starts, you know, and then he confronts Anthony, calling him a monster and a murderer and starts to blame the parents for even having him at all and creating this nightmare world. And Anthony is getting angry at this. And that's the clip that you heard. Right. So Hollis baits him and tells him to do his worst, then yells for someone to hit the kid over the head while he distracts them. Uh, so no one has the courage to do this. And that's when Anthony changes him into a jack-in-the-box. And we just see the shadow of this thing. And Hollis's wife's and all the women scream. And that's the clip that you heard. But then it pans to the jack-in-the-box with the guy's head and it looks really funny fucking scary. I mean, it looks really good for the time. And they beg him to wish it away to the cornfield, and he does. And then Anthony starts to make it snow outside, and his father starts to get mad at him because it will ruin their crops. Um, But then everyone kind of calms the father down, and father says, but it's good that you made it snow outside. It's real good, and tomorrow's going to be a good day. So that's where we end. Just creepy as fuck. Yeah. Um, I think that along with Living Doll, this is the absolute most terrifying episode of the show. Um, It's executed flawlessly. It's darker and more violent in its implications than just about any other episode. It's funny because the Paste magazine um, article that ranked the episodes actually compared the way that these characters treat Anthony to the way that the uh, the Republican Party treated Donald Trump. you know basically just it's good that you did that donald it's good that you grabbed them by the pussy um and it i thought that was really funny because it's kind of like power in the wrong hands right a childish uh you know when when a child has power what you end up with is this this extreme violence like the whole like they're they're like i created a i created a gopher with three heads they're just creeped out by his like sociopathy you know and it's just amazing so i will say uh one of the things this episode demonstrates so this is actually a based on a short story by author jerome bixby and we kind of alluded to him earlier with the mirror image episode because he is also the author of the star trek episode mirror mirror uh what that features the goatee evil spock so great author uh, this also features incredible performances by Cloris Leachman as Anthony's mother, John Larch as his father, Don Keeler as um, you know the character Diane Hollis who gets uh, Jack in the Box, and of course some of the best child acting ever by Billy Mummy. Uh, there is a Black Mirror episode that's fantastic called "The USS Callister" that's inspired by this as well about a character who uh, played by Jesse Plemons who has this Star Trek-like game where he has absolute power. Um, But unfortunately, in the 2002 season of Twilight Zone, and I did watch this in researching this episode, there was a sequel to this called It's Still a Good Life that features Chloris Leachman, Billy Mummy as an adult, and Billy Mummy's actual daughter who also has powers. And it's fucking unbelievably terrible. But I will say that Joe Dante's segment in Twilight Zone, the movie, of this is quite good. I don't like it as much as the original, but it's still really great. Uh, but yeah, this will always be probably my favorite just because it's so fucking creepy.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And again, this is usually at the top of the lists of the best episodes ever. Sure.
2: Right. Right.
1: Um, Alright, so those are our top five. I, I am going to give an honorable mention to one, talk about a few other episodes that I think are cool. And then I will do my evaluation if that makes sense. So, um, an honorable mention is one I, I was really debating putting this in the top five and knocking one of the other ones out. I couldn't, but I love this one as much. It's called night call and it's season five, episode 19. And this is one that is usually not on people's top list, but as a kid, this one creeped me out more than anything else, and the the plot of this one was this uh, old woman in a wheelchair. Um, she lives in kind of this rural community, and she has a, a, a like a nurse who takes care of her and helps with things. She starts getting these phone calls um, that uh, she she can't. Nobody's on the other end of the line, and it's like one of those you know you know creepy phone call things that probably kicked off that whole genre about like when a stranger calls and you know all those sorts of things. But she keeps getting these calls. She she keeps getting these calls, and the character's name is uh, Elva. She keeps getting these calls, and then she starts hearing this creepy voice about like, "Hey, it's me, yeah." You know, it's like this really gravelly, creepy voice. She calls the phone company and says, "Hey, what's going on? You know, like, hey, you're why you can't be getting calls from when you're saying because the phone line is down in the area." You shouldn't be getting any calls at that point. How she can call the operator, I'm not sure. But nevertheless, maybe it's a different part of town where this phone line is supposed to be coming from. She uh, starts getting uh, more and more of these calls. The voice on the other end starts trying to talk to her more and more and more. She's getting freaked out. She's kind of compelled by it at the same time. You know, she the her nurse advises her to take the phone off the hook, which she does. But then she, she puts it back on. And as soon as she puts it back on, the phone rings and she answers it. And she's like, who is this? Who are you? And the voice just kind of just starts repeating, you know, these very simple uh, phrases to her. She calls back the phone company. and They're like, look, this line is down. And, it, you know, the, we're, they're investigating it. And then they, she calls back again and they said, look, the line is down. It's, uh, they, they traced it. It's in the cemetery. They're going to go and fix it tomorrow. And she makes her nurse take her to the cemetery, pushes her wheelchair out to uh, the, you know, in the cemetery. They find the phone line and it's in the grave of her fiance. <laughs> so great. <laughs> and the story and she sees it and she sees. Who, and, and, and by the way, like uh, uh, before, you know, she, she goes out there, uh, you know, the, the the guy calls her again and she says, never call me again you know, leave me alone, leave me alone. He goes out there and finds that it's in the grave of her fiance. And the story was that, um, you know, she was a young woman and she didn't know how to drive. And her young fiance had a car and she demanded that he let her drive because, you know, she always got what she wanted and she was driving and crashed it, killed him and, and maimed her for life. And, uh, you know, she was wanting to talk with her fiance, realized it was him. And he's just like, "Nope, I'm never talking to you again. You told me to leave you alone. And I always do what you tell me. Kind of like, be careful what you ask for thing. Right. The, it's so fucking creepy. It's like the way this is executed, the voice, like all of it, the look of it. Just creeped me out as a kid. And I we watched it recently. And it still creeped me out to this very day. So if you've never seen that one, it's not as popular, go check it out. There's a couple others I, I want to I highlight real quick here. There's one called The After Hours, which is kind of a mannequin on furlough. That's ep- season one, episode 34. That's a good one. The
2: That's shelter- a great one. Yeah. yeah,
1: you remember that one? Yeah, um, yeah. Yep. The Shelter, season three, episode three, uh, a doctor. It's a, a, another bomb shelter kind of thing where all the neighbors turn on each other, similar to The Monsters Are Doing Maple Street. Um, same kind of idea. A uh, quality of mercy is a, a kind of a famous one for season three, where um, there's a new officer, uh, the war, uh, World War II, uh, American soldiers in uh, fighting Japanese in the, in the Pacific, and a new officer sh- showed on the scene, eager to prove himself and wanting people to kind of take that hill and you know just stop being such a wuss and we're going to go right in the middle and kill those Japs and all that kind of stuff, and uh, the guy learns a lesson. Uh, I won't. Betray the twist here. You should go and watch it. Uncle Simon, we talked about. uh, Number 12 looks just like you. Season 5, episode 17. Kind of a Stepford Wives kind of thing. Very famous. Another one that I actually had in my top five, but when I watched it, it didn't make the cut. But it's still interesting. It's called The Midnight Sun. uh, Season 3, episode 10. um, Where where there's a a plot where seemingly the, the, the Earth is moving closer and closer to the sun. Um, but there's a there's a twist there, so check that one out.
2: Yeah, uh, I totally remember that. The twist is crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's really good.
1: It's a really good one. Um, and then finally, the one I wanted to call out, last one is called "The Invaders," season two, episode fifteen. Again, this one is on everyone's top ten list. It stars Andora from Bewitched, Agnes yep, Moorehead. Agnes
2: Moorehead an incredible, incredible performance. Yes, yeah, in
1: I, I was some imagine. of the
2: best acting.
1: Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm not going to tell you the twist. Here, uh, I encourage you, if you don't know this one, most people probably do. There's a there's a really amazing twist at the end. Uh, season 2, episode 15, The Invaders. Uh, By
2: the way, uh, we should mention that uh, along with Time Enough at Last, this is cited as Rod Serling's favorite episode. So these two.
1: Yeah. And you can see why. It's really quite... Yeah. And it it is so fucking creepy, too. Like, the, the yeah. acting is great, and there's, like, elements of the show of the episode are so are are so creepy and the noises are creepy and the set like yeah it's
2: kind of violent too it, yeah it's it actually kind of weirdly creepily violent um yeah. as the invaders attack her and she gets these weird welts and they yeah. kind of stab it's just but but yeah the twist is pretty pretty crazy yep it's yep. a good
1: one it's a good one so all right so my evaluation here thoughts on this is we mentioned that there's some more, you know, the inspiration, the precursors, to me, are more literary than anything else. You mentioned Orwell, 1984, Animal Farm. You can't go far without mentioning those as influences, and they certainly are. And they're great influences, uh, you know, two of the greatest books ever written. And In my estimation, um, 1984 is the greatest book ever written, and we'll probably uh, uh, cover that book at some point on the show um, you have Brave New World is another, you know, some others that you may have heard of, Darkness at Noon, The Iron Heel. Uh, many of these were exploring totalitarianism and human psychology um, versus human psychology in a lot of ways. Obviously, they're related. Rod, Serling, uh, Rod Serling's wartime experiences had a tremendous impact on him. And you mentioned some of them, including sitting next to somebody who is decapitated and just... Can you imagine being in a unit where 50% of the people are killed? Like he saw the worst of humanity every single fucking day.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. Um, I want to point out that um, a couple other things that I think had a huge influence that aren't talked about a lot, but I I perceive their influence at least one of them is um, the Nuremberg trials in the mid forties where there was a lot of very public examination of, what had happened with the Holocaust and and sort of the rationale for it by the people who perpetrated it. the I was just following orders stuff, the, you know, oh, I didn't know this was going on. And, you know, I thought it was something else. And that the, that was, you know, obviously a huge influence. Um, the Adolf Eichmann trials that happened in the early uh, trial that happened in the early 1960s was actually... Ongoing when they uh, made that uh, Death's Head Revisit episode. Um, and again, he echoed many of the, the same just ridiculous excuses um, that those who were convicted for crimes against humanity in the Nuremberg Trials, he was also convicted similarly and uh, executed, thankfully. Um, the uh, A lot of these were just like examinations of what modern humans were were capable of. And... You know, I also want to point out that um, there were some, a couple of, in the early 1960s and early 1970s, two very, very famous experiments, I think uh, psychological experiments, and I've talked about them on the show a little bit, Um, but one of them in 1961, and it's hard to argue that this influenced all of the show, given that this experiment happened in 1961, and the ramifications of it weren't really well known until afterwards, but this is sort of the fact that they were doing these sorts of experiments was, you know, interesting. It's the Milgram experiment um, that happened at Yale University. Um, this experiment started when the Eichmann trial was actually underway, and um, this is the one that the famous um, shock experiments where they um, right uh, got uh, people. the 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 uh, The subjects were told to shock. Uh, were paid and told, with the guys in the lab coats, told to shock somebody behind the glass that they needed to do this. And it was a, um, you know, they paid them to do this, and they pressured them to keep going higher and higher voltages. The, the, uh, the person was, uh, as an actor, was uh, pretending to be, um, you know, uh, shocked and, and more and more and more, and the experimenters convinced them to put the voltage up higher and higher and higher, and um, to see if people would go along doing it, actually torturing and maybe even thinking um, that they're killing uh, another person. And I want to read um, uh, Stanley Milgram's uh, take on the, on the results, because I think this is interesting. It says, uh, the legal and philosophic aspects of obedience are of enormous importance, but they say very little about how most people behave in concrete situations. I set up a simple experiment at Yale University to test how much pain an ordinary citizen would inflict on another person simply because he was ordered by an experimental scientist. Stark authority was pitted against the subject's strongest moral imperatives against hurting others. And with the subjects, the participants' ears ringing with the screams of the victim, authority won more often than not. The extreme willingness of adults to go to most any lengths on the command of authority constitutes the chief finding of the study and the fact that most urgently demanding explanation. Ordinary people simply doing their jobs and without any particular hostility on their part can become agents in a terrible destructive process. Moreover, even when the destructive effects of their work become patently clear and they are asked to carry out actions incompatible with fundamental standards of morality, relatively few people have the resources needed to resist authority. So... That, to me, um, that's really, really crazy and true and shocking. Remind people the fact that um, a lot of these experiments were done um, and a lot of interest in this from a social, social psychology perspective were in academia based on the events of the Holocaust and things like that. There's a lot of controversy about this particular experiment that I won't go into here. Some people thought it was an immoral experiment. Some people thought that the parallelisms to to Nazi Germany weren't precise, and there's a lot of reasons why. But you get the idea. This experiment has been uh, reproduced and repeated in various ways, and the results generally uh, track to this um, that have happened even in relatively modern times. The other one I want to call out happened in the early 70s, um, the Stanford Prison Experiment. Again, I think we've talked about this one on the yeah, show. Yeah, you
2: talked about this, uh, I think, on the Dead Kennedys episode or one of those. E-
1: exactly. And this is the one where um, the, uh, they got students at Stanford University to play guards and prisoners in a, in a prison setup. And the, the, the prisoners uh, started acting like prisoners and the guards started acting like guards and treating the prisoners poorly And it's kind of like a group mentality thing, group psychology thing, us against them thing, all these sorts of things. My point with this is that I think Rod Serling understood either by nature of these sort of experiments, by nature of the zeitgeist at the time that these experiments were studying and going on, about humanity a lot. He understood sort of, you know, what humans actually are and where we're good and where we have problems as a species and those problems are endemic and like we are talking about with the the monsters are doing maple street they don't go away just because you have you know the internet or you know modern psychology or you know you know so called you know modern society in fact they get worse in some cases and i think rod serling was kind of was saying In a sense that, you know, there's a thin patina of civility on an otherwise feral species, which is humanity. And this is easily eroded even when there are minor stresses on the system. And that theme is explored again and again and again in the Twilight Zone. And personally, I could not agree more. I I, I think this like this fear um, and all the other themes that he that he touches on and other writers, of course, uh, touch on in the show Uh, Fear of the unknown, scarcity, corruption. You talked about that. Corruption of power, specifically. Um, Conformity, crowd psychology, society expectations and norms. We talked about that with the eye of the beholder. Apathy, racism, um, anti-Semitism, of course. Righteousness, avarice, karma is a big one. Uh, Revenge, the Cold War. You mentioned that as being, and paranoia. I think all these things easily erode this very thin patina of civility on um, our society and, and humans in general, um, and you know, it is what it is. We're all here on the same earth, but uh, I think Rod was onto something, and uh, that is that—that's uh, to me one of the huge takeaways. Um, look, I, as far as the episodes and my final evaluation and rewatching a lot of these, a couple things stand out to me: the stark bat, black and white uh, production is sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. The melodramatic acting style is sort of a um, you know thing of the, those times, and um, it's a little melodramatic at times, but um, the lessons are morality plays. Um, a fair criticism might be that some of these are too on the nose, and I, I do think that is a fair criticism in many uh, cases. Um, I would also counter that a lot of this needs to be evaluated in terms of the time that this came out, which is, again, what we do here at CFX, And I think at the time, viewed in a modern context, these seem a little melodramatic and quaint and maybe hackneyed. But at the time, they were completely original, um, completely uh, sui generis in in the fact of it it created a lot of these uh, paradigms and things like that. I am a huge admirer, not only of what Rod Serling accomplished with Twilight Zone, but how he did it and who he was as a person. You talked about it. He's a complete fucking badass. I think he was brilliant. I think a lot of his insights that we I was just talking about are still even more true today. Um, and sadly, in some in some cases, he killed himself with cigarettes and maybe stress. I would have loved to see what he could have done and said for another 30 years of his life. It's such a bummer that he did not live. You mentioned Black Mirror as a natural successor to Twilight Zone. It certainly is. Um, and there are... I, I'm not the biggest Black Mirror fan in the world. I we could talk about that at, at a different time. I've seen some episodes and some of them are quite good. And I think that they're they're harder core, they're darker, they're more violent, they're they're and that's just kind of a byproduct of the modern era. But I think Twilight Zone still just did it better, um, simpler in some ways, more elegantly. Um Many of the lessons of Twilight Zone seem to be old hat now. You know, phrases such as man's inhumanity, inhumanity to man," man, you know, for example, are used in almost like uh, mocking or sarcastic circumstances. But I do think Rod Serling had a unique insight into the weaknesses and foibles of the human character and um, that, you know, few people have had before or, or, or since or as eloquently stated as he has done. I think Rod Serling and Twilight Zone certainly is one of the cultural highlights of the 20th century in terms of influence. um, There's no question about it. The show itself may be a little bit different though. And this is where I'm very, very highly conflicted. Um, If I was just basing my evaluation solely on the influence and the quality, I'd be as long as I could go. There's no question about it. It's just like, I think Rod was brilliant. I think the show is amazing. Um, the influence of the show is completely undeniable. The quality of it at its heights, is undeniable. But if I'm looking at it from a lens of, if 50 years from now people are going to go back and view this 20th century melodramatic show, black and white, um, and even the, you know, just kind of looking at it with a new light, the, a lot of the best elements and the influence of this show have been mined a thousand times and will be mined a thousand times more the stories, the writing, the plot twist, um, a lot of it lifted directly from this show. I just, I'm not certain that people are going to go back and and recognize that the show itself in its original form is something that would be, you know, rediscovered and celebrated beyond the nostalgia that I have and maybe people of our generation and generations that surround us have. And so I actually am, I, I gotta go neutral here because there's no way I'm going short on this. There's no way, but I just, I'm having a hard time seeing people 50 or 70 years from now going back into celebrating the show as much as you and I are celebrating this show today. So that's where I'm at.
2: Dude, that's like a fucking twist ending, not going completely long on the show. I I, know. Knew, I I didn't even read the bottom of your thing. I'm reading them, So Jeff's fucking nuts uh, for not going completely long. But um, I'm actually it's funny because I'm actually going to talk about some of the bad things about the show, because I thought Jeff's really captured all the good stuff here with this long kind of treatise. So I don't really need to say anything more. I kind of agree with most of it, except for your final twist ending. I'm going to stay more conventional uh, and be long on the show, but I will get to that. So first, let's talk about one thing that really sticks out to me. If you look at all of our top episodes, there's one thing you don't see, and that's a single episode from season four. Uh, Season four is almost always the worst episodes, and I actually do agree with that. Um, one particular bad example, and this is what you were talking about when you talked about things being on the nose. Um, one particular egregious example is a, is an episode called he's alive, which I kind of like in spite of itself. It's mainly because it's got a young Dennis Hopper in it (laughs) as a young fascist. Um, and it, it, the bummer about this episode is I think if it would have been 30 minutes long, it would have been a lot better. Um, Because it does actually get some things right that still, uh, I think, resonate today. And that's how to how to be a successful fascist and why fascism is still successful in spite of being terrible. Yeah, Um, So what the plot is, is basically Dennis Hopper is an unsuccessful fascist. He's got his little group of uniformed guys and they're trying to talk about the immigrants and all this. It really does resonate today, Uh, you know, even though there are some things about it that are dated. So he's doing this unsuccessfully. He's kind of getting beat up by crowds and all this. And this mysterious figure uh, appears to him and kind of tells him how to do it right. you've got to identify with them. You've got to do this. And I'm just like, "Wow." And he starts to make a speech and I'm like, "Man, this is just like Trump. Yeah. It's crazy. It's great." But of course, you know who the fucking shadowy figure is right away. And it's it takes an uh, an hour or 40 minutes or whatever with commercials 45 minutes to get there. Uh of course, it's Adolf Hitler. And what's weird is that this is even a twist because it's not like when Dennis Hopper is talking, he has posters of Hitler and Mussolini behind him. Yeah. And and if I had directed this episode, I would have had him pretend not to want to associate with those guys and then have the twist be, oh, it's Hitler. This is the guy you're following. Uh, But it's not really that way. And what's weird is he also is friends with this old Jewish man who's actually a former concentration camp survivor. Who pities him, but why would this guy be friends with this total fascist who's like completely hates he's anti-Semitic, he hates him? It's just kind of a mess.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, and it's way too long for what it is. And then the twist just isn't really even a twist. Um, but anyway, that's a bad one. And then and then there's one that's just crazy called Jezebel, which is this weird gothic southern horror. The only thing good about it is that Anne Francis, who's also in the mannequin episode is really kind of hot in it. Yeah. Cause she's got this kind of black hair and it's got this Veronica look, kind of this uh, almost Yvonne DiCarlo and the Munsters kind of look, um, kind of a Gothic uh, chick, um, you know, but it's like this whole story about her being this weird country, witch and this old grandma, and it's just like, how is this even twilight zone? It doesn't even pan out. So a lot of, I don't think there's almost any episodes that really stand out in the fourth season. They're just too long, and it was just a failed experiment. Also, whenever the Twilight Zone tried to do comedy, now, Like, to serve man, and it's a good life, are almost black comedy. They're just so dark. But whenever I tried to do straight comedy, it wasn't very good. Uh, Case in point, an episode called Mr. Beavis starring Orson Bean as this kind of goofy, quirky character who gets everything he wishes for but then realizes that he likes his eccentricity is just boring and not funny when it tries to be funny. Uh, Even worse, Cavender is coming. Uh, Season 3, episode 36, starring Carol Burnett. Mm. Look, Carol Burnett was great, but she just doesn't belong in the Twilight Zone. It's like a goofy comedy. Oh, and God, I I talked about AI episodes. Well, there's one from season 5, season 5, episode 20 from Agnes with Love about a computer that falls in love with a person. Uh, It's really terrible. Excruciating, right? And then the Twilight Zone, look, it was one guy doing all this work there naturally had to be some repetition. And there's a few recycled plots. One of these is the person who wants to go back to their past. Now, some of these episodes are great, but there's one that's really bad called Young Man's Fancy, episode uh, season three, episode 34. It's a mama's boy who wants to revert to being a child. Uh, this plot is recycled in Kick the Can, which I think is a great episode. The Incredible World of Horace Ford, um, which is basically an hour-long remake in season four of another episode called Walking Distance, that's a lot better. Walking Distance, I mentioned, of late, I think, of Cliffordville is another one. And Last Stop at Willoughby, where a character wants to retreat to a kind of idyllic past. That one's cool because it has this incredible dark ending where there's no stop at Willoughby, but the guy ends up jumping off the train and dying. I really like that one. That's a very
1: famous one, too. That's yeah. on people's list of top episodes, Yep. There's another
2: one about a TV that you can see the future in called what's in the box. Now, that's a cool idea, but it's completely recycled from another episode from earlier in the in the, uh, in the the series called A Most Unusual Camera, where this camera took pictures of the future. So again, there was some uh, recycling. There's an other episodes that are just crappy. One of them, I actually remembered fondly, but when I revisited it, it just was so excruciating. It's the last episode of the series called The Bewitching Pool, where these kids dive into this pool and they go into this alternate world of Huckleberry Finn and, you know, bunded benevolent grandmothers and their parents are terrible. It just doesn't hold up uh another one uh an episode called The Chaser from Season one, which is basically a character wants you know this woman to love him, but then it's really sexist because she ends up becoming too fawning on him, so he gets sick of her and he gets her pregnant and doesn't want the baby. It's really weird um so there were a few um. I just wanted to say the show wasn't perfect. Right. You know, I I you when you remember these great episodes like we talked about, and even some of the Arnold mentions you mentioned, or some of the other ones I mentioned, uh, you know, it just seems like it's a perfect show. But it's probably closer than most shows would be for as many episodes as there were. And again, it's one person writing the vast majority of these episodes, which is just incredible when you think about it. Like what a T, I mean, he's the greatest TV genius of all time. Really, the greatest person ever to work in the medium, which is why I find your weird short thing kind of, I get what you're saying, but at the same time, I kind of have to disagree because the sh- this show is so powerful. It's a genre. It's become an actual genre. And now we say this is the Twilight Zone. And I do feel like these episodes, the fact that they're being rebooted and remade shows that it really has stood the test of time. I think people are going to continue to refer to it and like I say, get what you're saying. I just don't agree um, that I think it's actually going to resonate. And But,
1: but I mean, I think, is it the influence, which I totally agree as long, or is it people going and watching the original show, which is what I'm saying. I don't think people are. Well, people are like.
2: remaking the show. Yeah. They're making sequels. They're doing things to, to episodes. So, I mean, that must show that it's already stood the test of time. The fact that Jordan Peele rebooted the show in 2019, I mean, a very zeitgeisty director right now. And, you know, actually, to your point, the sh- his reboot was a failure. You know, it, didn't, it wasn't that well-received and it only lasted two seasons. But, you know, and then you have Black Mirror, which is taking that same concept and doing it based on technology, um, I think is... You know, a testament to the show. And then the fact that he did a sequel to Deserve Man and everybody was like, oh, this is a big deal because it's a sequel, even though people were like, well, why is this a sequel? It was using the cachet of the power of that original episode to kind of boost itself. You know, so
1: I think that. But do you think the value? But I guess my point is, is do you think the value is going to go up? or stay the same like you know, all these reboots i would argue that's why you could go uh you know neutral yeah because- I,
2: I see what you're saying yeah. i see what you're saying yeah i still think it's going to go up okay. I, I just think because it's its own genre because of just how great it is um i just didn't even think there was a question i mean my one thing was that i encountered where these episodes where i was just like yeah this isn't very good you know there are a yeah. lot that aren't very good but i think the the level of quality that the peak reaches is crazy. There're probably like 50 episodes of the show that are like perfect 10s. Yeah. You know, and then there are 50 more that are decent, and then there are probably 50 more that well, not so good and maybe 20 that are just fucking bad. Yep. You know, but in general, I'm I'm long on it.
1: Yeah. Well, I I, I get that. Personally, I am as well. I think this is, yeah, like yeah. I said, one of the greatest I things. mean, there's, you know,
2: with CFX, we, we divorce our feelings from from some of it. So I think your your comments are fair. I just was a little shocked because I'm like, you wanted to do this. And we were kind of like, yeah, we're long on it. We really just want to pick our favorite episodes and talk about it. And then you're like, you do this twist
1: ending yeah. where you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah. anyway. All right. Well, b- before we wrap up, I, I think it's worthwhile, you know, as it, we're examining, you know, the twilight zone and the crossover with reality and the things that can happen in the twilight zone that maybe um are a little strange uh and a little surreal and a little you know twisty and all as you were just saying. Um what happens if, you know, some of our past guests and 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 featured performers on TFX entered the twilight zone? What would that look like? Right? Like how would Rod Serling set that up? So I know you, you had one, you wanted to, to uh, examine a, a particular past musical guest that we had and how Rod Serling might refer to him. So do you, you want to do that one?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I don't really have a story for it, but I have an intro.
1: Okay. Okay, here we go. Yeah.
2: Witness Mr. Joe Jackson, a part-time musician and full-time smoker, <laughs> whose only desire is to never let a cigarette part from his lips but who sees himself at odds with a world that sees smoking as dangerous and treats smokers as pariahs. Mr. Jackson would like nothing better than to change this world, and he soon will, but he'll also find himself stepping out in a yellow taxi on a one-way trip to the Twilight Zone. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking maybe he could just be like fucking... In a giant ashtray and, yeah. <laughs> and you don't know where he is but obviously uh, you know i would have to take out the smoking references and then, or he could just be in a world where everybody smokes and be yeah. you know uh hooked to an oxygen machine and yeah yeah anyways i don't know <laughs> all right or he could be re- he could find himself in 1974 as rod serling
1: with yeah. only one year to live you know yeah at any rate Days away know. from the heart attack, and he keeps reliving the same.
2: Uh, That's right. Uh, he keeps having the heart attack. Yeah, there's one I didn't mention with Dennis Weaver called Shadow Play that I was going to mention as part of Mirror Image, but it isn't really related. This one kicks ass. This is the one where he's on death row and he's mm. constantly living the dream, and the people in the dream don't know they're in a dream, and he keeps trying to convince them. And he's like, "That detail's wrong. I got that from a movie. It's fucking." Awesome and his performance is really great. I should call out the acting, you know, again, the the acting and the directing and the music and the writing are all fantastic. But I love how the episode ends where the guys are like in a race against time to try to get him his, his um death penalty pardoned just so they could see if he's right. And then all of a sudden you see these the clock disappear and this other thing disappears and then you're in the courtroom again. But it's really creepy how they just have these little details disappear really quickly. And you're just like, because you're not sure if he's delusional or he's actually right, that it's all a dream. But I really, uh, I don't know why I thought of that one, but it just was another one that I wanted to call out. But anyway, go on. So you've got a couple you have created. Yeah.
1: So, um, all right. So here, here's a past uh, star of CFX. I'm going to do the third one f- first. Right. Submitted for your approval one Hervé Villachez, a talented French painter, actor, and part-time, self anointed sex instructor. Like many of us, he aspired to the good things in life. Money, fame, groupies, and having a bigger trailer than his co-stars. But as the saying goes, be careful what you wish for, because you might find yourself taking a dump in the twilight zone <laughs> yeah i was trying to think of
2: something with sex instructor first lesson free. like how do we do that one dude i just i just came up with fucking like like other ones i came up with were just like made me laugh without even coming up with a story like meet one frederick rerun Stubbs, like that <laughs> <laughs> or I couldn't think of it. I couldn't, I didn't write it, but I was thinking of one thing that would be funny as like Verdine White and his whole experience with yogurt uh, in
1: California. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Meet Verdine White, noted virtuosic bass player for the band Earth, Wind, and Fire. He grew up on the East Coast in a very traditional <laughs> family. The twists and turns of his career took him to a strange weird place California where he encountered things like yogurt
2: groupies. he's about to have a creamy dessert in the twilight zone <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah 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 I, I, I like that one. how about this one okay all right consider one William Hayslip Squire mm. by all accounts a good looking <coughs> sexy guy who was on top of the rock and roll world everything was going his way until he donned a pink halter top broke out his dance moves and recorded a music video that could only be shown in the twilight zone
2: yeah that actually is a twist right yeah Uh, another one I started but didn't think of was meet Gavin Troy (laughs)
1: Yeah, he, he'd be he gets by
2: transported in the into Castro. He gets yeah, transported exactly. into
1: Castro. He can't deal with it. Who <laughs> are these yeah. poofters? Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like anyway. he, he's he's assaulted by all the people that he's uh, made fun of. And that what is it? The ass bandits and the poofters and the dykes that he's uh, uh, always uh, calling out in the episodes. So I
2: also thought it would be funny to transport John Ford Coley back to the Black Plague. <laughs> you know so that yeah. you have to experience oh,
1: that's a, a good video. one that's a good yeah, one
2: yeah yeah totally, you know, you, totally. Know,
1: he, you know he goes on some anti uh you know covid vaccination thing and then he you know, he wakes up and desperate for right, vaccination right, right. and the yeah, i like that one that's a good one that's a, it's a, true that's a good one um, True. maybe maybe billy joel and, and and would be one where he actually uh instead of making dirty phone calls to the woman oh, he, yeah. he could actually meet her but he, he lived, he met Christy Brinkley. And so, I, I mean, I don't know. He is, yeah. East Zone is a, is a pretty good one. It's true. All right. Well, all and, right. That's, any other ones probably, you have or should we, wrap I don't up? know.
2: I don't know. I think that's all I had really.
1: All right. Well, you get the idea. You can, uh, listeners, you can make up your own. You can post them on our Instagram. If you'd like, um, if you have other uh, past guests, uh, that you would want uh, Riley Sterling to introduce. Uh, we'll wrap up episode uh, 39 here, of The Twilight Zone. Uh, this is Jeff, that's Slip. We'll catch you next time.